The History of Philosophy, Founders of Western Philosophy, Thales to Hume. Lecture 7. At the end of the last lecture, we reached the brink of the medieval abyss, but we did not yet take the full plunge. Tonight we will. We witnessed last time the protracted deterioration and final death of ancient pagan philosophy. We saw the progressive flourishing of supernaturalism, mysticism, asceticism, otherworldliness, the quest for a supernatural salvation, the rise of the mystery cults, and among them the development of the cult of Jesus. At the beginning, an obscure reform movement within Judaism, then a mystery cult of its own, and finally a full-fledged philosophy with characteristic views in every branch and department and on every subject, the philosophy that was, of course, destined to rule the West for well over a millennium. Our subject this evening is the philosophy of Christianity, after it had finally developed, in other words, by about the 4th or 5th century AD. <clears throat> to begin with, I want to say a very few words about some of the early figures in the rise of what later came to be called Christianity. And I can hardly omit at least a sentence or two on Jesus himself whose dates are 4 B.C. to 29 A.D. <laughs> Jesus was Jewish and believed in the God of Judaism, Jehovah, or Yahweh, as this God is called. Jesus was a deeply religious man, preaching that God is the father of all men and that all men are brothers, a view which in this respect is very similar to the Stoic doctrine we looked at last time. Jesus preached that the essence of morality is love, first and foremost love of God. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy soul and all thy mind. And secondarily and derivatively, love of the neighbor. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Both of these love commandments, by the way, have their source in Judaic tradition. Jesus did not originate them, but he gave them a stress and emphasis hitherto unprecedented. As to the rest of his ethical teachings and his view of man's life on earth, I presume that you are familiar with them, and I won't pause to recapitulate them now. The essence is, of course, in the Sermon on the Mount, to some aspects of which I will refer briefly later. <clears throat> I'll merely say that Jesus himself seems, from the evidence we have, to have been deeply convinced that Judgment Day was imminent, and that in the face of this fact, in the face of the imminent end of the world, Physical goods, external comforts, material affluence, worldly success, and so on, were simply foolish and unimportant. Give away your goods, he preached, turn the other cheek. Consider the lilies of the field, they toil not, neither do they spin. In a word, turn to God and prepare yourself to meet your maker. Now, I trust you're familiar with this, so I won't repeat it here. In fundamentals, Jesus' teachings were obviously congenial to the overall spirit of the age in which he lived and taught. The metaphysics of supernaturalism, that's obvious. The ethics of asceticism and otherworldliness, that is obvious. Even in epistemology, the age was right because of its authoritarianism. And just a word on this last. As philosophy deteriorated, by the time we reached the second, first century BC and progressively thereafter, it became common for thinkers to defend a viewpoint not by giving arguments but by citing authorities. 
by saying that some great philosopher, usually Plato or Pythagoras, had endorsed this view so it must be true. And as the age grew more religious, the great thinkers of the past came to be viewed as inspired or illumined by God, as the bearers not of rational insight but of divine revelation. It was, in a word, a period progressively ripe for a man to announce that he represented or was designated by God, was the spokesman of God. Jesus was not the only such spokesman, of course, there were others. But the point is that in thus viewing himself, he was in harmony with the dominant epistemology of the age. Now, Jesus' early followers, from what we can tell, or at least many of them, apparently conceived Jesus as a prospective founder of a Jewish state on earth, in effect as a political liberator of the Jews. They thought of him as the man designated by God to do God's work on earth, that is, specifically to liberate the Jews from tyranny. So they called him Jesus the Anointed, or Jesus the Designated, i.e. Jesus the Messiah, which is what Messiah means. And since the Greek for Messiah is Christos, he was Jesus the Christ. Now, I point out to you in passing, Christ is not his last name. He is not the child of Mr. and Mrs. Christ. Now, it is primarily, not exclusively, but primarily owing to St. Paul, who was born around the beginning of the Christian era, that this Jesus movement was transformed into a distinct mystery religion. And it is thus Paul who is really responsible more than anyone else for the emergence of Christianity as a separate religion rather than being merely an obscure sect within Judaism. Where Jesus had talked of worshipping Jehovah, Paul talked of worshipping Jesus. He construed Jesus on the pattern of many of the extant mystery cults as a God, a God who died and then was resurrected and not merely you see a divinely appointed political messenger or moral guide. Uh, Paul, at the inception of what was to become Christianity, laid great emphasis on several points. He was not the only one to endorse these points by any means, but they're characteristic of him. One, the crucial importance of salvation to be achieved by ultimate mystic union with Jesus. In other words, by the loss of one's own identity and the ultimate merging with God. This is a state very similar to Plato's uh, view of the ultimate merging with the form of the good or with Plotinus's ecstasy, which was, of course, not to be formulated until some centuries after Paul. Two, I'm giving you these in no particular order, Paul stressed man's utter helplessness and dependence on God's grace, on God's free gift of salvation to man if man is to be saved. On his own, said Paul, man cannot earn or achieve or deserve salvation, because man is evil, corrupt, stained by sin. The original sin of Adam transmitted thereafter to all of Adam's posterity. Therefore, man needs grace. Grace is a key term in Christian philosophy, and the best definition uh, of it is, it is the unearned offering of values by God to man. <clears throat> now, a word here on the term sin in the phrase original sin. The term sin has to be sharply contrasted with the secular term vice or wrongdoing or its equivalents. When the Greeks said that something was wrong or vicious, they meant that it was contrary to the nature of man, contrary to the dictates of reason, that it harmed the individual and violated reason. Wrongdoing for them following the Socratic method or uh, position was essentially self-destruction. 
Sin, however, is a religious term. It means disobedience to the will of God. It is therefore not so much what you do in actual content as the fact that you do it on your own, by your own decision, rather than submit to the will of God. Sin means religious disobedience, alienation from God's will, as against the Greek view of evil as transgression against man's nature. So Adam's sin, for instance, was not in the content of his act, not in the simple eating of the apple, but in doing it after God had forbidden it. But, Paul goes on, just as Adam corrupted uh, 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 all of his posterity by his sin, so Jesus will save and redeem them by his sacrifice on the cross. If you believe in him, if you have faith. And thus, point three of Paul that I'm going to mention, the crucial importance of faith of acceptance in the absence of argument, of mystic acceptance in the teachings and divinity of Jesus. And four, the crucial importance of leading an ascetic life, of turning away from worldly pleasures, above all de-emphasizing sex, and turning instead to God as the almost exclusive focus and center of one's concern. And I might mention simply a fifth point under Paul before we leave him, and that is that it's primarily owing to Paul's efforts that uh, this mystery cult became a universal religion. As we say, it became Catholic. Catholic means simply universal, and we still have that usage today when we say that somebody has Catholic tastes with a small c. In other words, uh, the Jesus movement after Paul was not restricted to Jews. It was applicable to all men, Greek or Jew, free man or slave, male or female. Whoever unites with Jesus will be saved. Now so much for a thumbnail sketch of Paul. Now I have no time even to do this short of job on the great many other figures who comprise these early centuries of Christian development. I cannot begin to recite their several contributions to the emerging Christianity. To make a long story short, let us summarize by saying that there are three main elements contributing to what emerged ultimately as Christianity. One, Jesus himself was Jewish, and there is therefore a large influence of Judaism on Christianity. Then. As Christianity, uh, as the Jesus movement became a separate mystery cult, taking Jesus as its God, it acquired further mystery cult trappings and dogmas that were not possessed by Judaism. And then, as its spokesmen tried to make it intellectually respectable, they tried to express Christian views in terms of concepts that they borrowed from Greek philosophy. They tried to answer the taunts of the pagans by working out a philosophy rather than just a cult of their own. And in so doing, they borrowed profoundly from Plato and above all, Plotinus. Now, this amalgam of varying sources and ideas led to many sects within the early Christians. And for the sake of retaining unity, the church had to keep meeting in appropriate councils of bishops to take formal stands, declare opposing positions on a given issue heretical, and carve out the orthodoxy slowly across centuries. And once the church spoke, that was it. Uh, one thing they decided quite early was the need for a sacred text. And of course, the reason is obvious. Uh, there was a wealth and abundance of revelations coming in at a rate you couldn't imagine. There was every conceivable kind of religious sect and subsect splitting off on the basis of their particular revelations, including Cainites who worshipped Cain, you know, the one that killed Abel, and Ophites who worshipped the serpent who uh, had tempted Adam. 
And the problem, you see, was intrinsic in the nature of founding an organized religion. You could no longer use logic as the standard, but you needed some standard to distinguish the true from the false. In this case, the true word of God from the false. And if uh, you're going to have an organized religion uh, with some stability, the only solution is to decree an orthodoxy and proscribe all debate thereafter. To stamp certain texts as the definitive revelation, and thereafter, that is the dogma, and the doors are closed to any new ones. And this is the process which gave rise to the New Testament uh, and uh, also to the absorption of the Old Testament by Christianity. Now, this whole period of settling basic doctrinal points, declaring what would and wouldn't count as an authentic revolution, uh, excuse me, revelation, organizing the administrative setup of the church and acquiring a philosophy to unify the whole thing, this, as I say, lasted hundreds of years, roughly from the time of Jesus till about the 6th century AD. And this period, these uh, six centuries, are called the patristic period, in other words, the period of the fathers of the church. The most famous of the fathers was Augustine, 354 to 430 AD. Augustine, early in his life, belonged to one particular sect known as the Manichees, about which I'll comment in a few minutes. Then he became a skeptic for a while, just on the order of the ones we mentioned last lecture. Uh, then he discovered Plotinus, and he was very much taken by Plotinus, and that softened him up for a mystic experience, which he had at the age of 32, and he became a devout Christian thereafter. Augustine represents the first real philosopher of Christianity. He is enormously influential on its subsequent development, Indeed, I would go so far as to say that his influence simply cannot be overestimated. He attempts to synthesize all the dogmas and practices of Christianity in one all-embracing philosophy, which became for centuries the philosophy of Christianity. So let us settle down now on Augustine and look at his philosophy systematically, with occasional excursions where necessary to earlier or later figures of this era. And first, his epistemology. In general, Augustine follows Plato. Strictly speaking, he says, we can never have knowledge of this world. This world is a world of change, a world of flux. True knowledge must be of immutable truths and platonic forms. Knowledge is of reality, not of this semi-real reflection of reality in which we live and which we perceive through our senses. The information we acquire from the senses, he says, has practical value in daily living. But strictly speaking, it never gives us knowledge because, as Plato pointed out, all we can get through the senses is belief. Well, if true knowledge for Augustine, as for Plato, consists of turning away from the physical world and sensory observation and studying immutable truths and platonic forms, that, of course, implies that Augustine endorsed Plato's view of a realm of forms, and so he did. As a Christian, however, he didn't believe <coughs> that the world of forms existed independently of God, because on Christian premises, nothing can exist independent of God. So Augustine followed Plotinus on this point and thought of the forms as merely thoughts in the mind of God. God's mind becomes, in effect, a spiritual home in which reside all the Platonic forms. True knowledge consists of turning away from this world and discovering the forms in God's mind. Thus, for Augustine, when you study mathematics or morality, for instance, you are studying unchanging and universal laws or truths, and that means you are studying the relations of immutable universals and that means you are studying the thoughts of God. So in effect, mathematics, ethics, etc. are branches of divine psychology. 
If there were no God, there would be no such subjects. Indeed, there would be no knowledge at all. It would be like Plato without the world of form. <clears throat> now, how do you gain this knowledge of the thoughts of God? Plato had said you have a reminiscence of a perce uh, preceding life, that you'd been there. Augustine is not permitted to take this view on Christian grounds. It is orthodoxy that there was no pre-existence of the soul. But then we have the question, if we can't gain the knowledge of God's thoughts through our senses, and we have no means of direct access to God's thought here on earth, how is knowledge possible? Augustine's answer is, God himself must communicate the truths to us. He must impress certain basic notions on the human mind and thereby enable man to discover the truth. Um, man, therefore, is ultimately dependent on God for all knowledge. He's dependent on a special act of divine illumination, as it is called, illumination. And I quote Numenius, another figure of the period, quote, all knowledge is the kindling of the small light from the great light who illumines the world, unquote. In this respect, man is epistemologically passive and helpless, dependent on God's act for any knowledge he has. Left to his own devices, deprived of God's aid, man could claim nothing as knowledge. Now, in fundamental terms, as you see, this is the Platonic approach to epistemology. Knowledge is contact with the supernatural dimension of essences. It is not the study of this world on the basis of sense experience. But Plato was a Greek. And as such, he held that given your pre-existence in the world of forms, you didn't, once you were on Earth, need any new illumination from the beyond. Sense perception and reasoning to stimulate your reminiscence was all that was required on Earth, culminating, of course, in a mystic vision. Augustine makes man much more helpless, much more dependent on the supernatural than Plato ever dreamed of doing. As a Greek, you see, Plato had to see firsthand. He had to acquire truth by a personal excursion before this life, of course, but nevertheless, a personal excursion to the world of forms to see for himself and acquire knowledge he could trust. Augustine, in a much more religious age, demands acceptance of God's illumination, of God's word. Uh, if, as is the case, you have no way to verify it yourself, he demands acceptance on faith. Plato asked for individual mystic insight but not faith in somebody else's revelations. Augustine demands faith, faith as such, acceptance of God's word as reported in scripture. Now, I may say here parenthetically that I think Augustine is the more consistent of the two on their common premises, because they both agree, Plato and Augustine, that man is a metaphysical dependent, simply a shadow or image of another world. Well, then in consistency, he must be an epistemological dependent also. In other words, dependent upon divine illumination for all knowledge. Plato tries to combine the Greek first-handed, rational epistemological independence with the metaphysics which subverts the individual. Augustine is more consistent. In metaphysics, man is a shadow, and in epistemology, his duty is to accept the word of the true reality when it is delivered to him. His duty is to have faith. So Augustine's epistemology is the platonic line combined with a sense of the acute helplessness and utter dependence of man on God. The more distinctively Christian side comes out, therefore, in Augustine's discussion of faith, which means belief or acceptance in the absence of understanding, of rational evidence or proof. Augustine's main point is, in regard to faith, 
that no man can set his own reason up as a judge of the truth or falsehood of Christian teachings. To do so would be to rely on one's puny intellect and commit the sin of intellectual pride. That which God has revealed to man must be accepted on faith. It must never be doubted. It must be ascended to because it comes from God, even if you don't understand why it's true. Once one has done this, once one starts with the faith, one should then, says Augustine, go on and try to make sense of it, try to understand it. But this is the proper procedure and order of acquiring knowledge. First believe, and then try, so far as you can, to understand. Quote, in a famous line, quote, one must first believe in order that one may then know, unquote. You see, the rational policy would, of course, be the exact reverse of that. And Augustine says, if you can understand, fine, give thanks to God. If not, recognize your limitations, recognize that God's truth is rational and he could illuminate you with the answers if he chose, but if he doesn't choose, you have no grounds to object. The analogy is sometimes given uh, to Augustine and his followers and predecessors who take this line that they regard the process of acquiring knowledge like a student with a math text. The answers are written at the back of the text. You take uh, the answer as given and try and work it out. If you can reach the answer in the back, fine. If you can't, you start over and you say, I must be doing something wrong because I knew the answer in advance. And of course, in this text, there's no misprint. <laughs> God printed the answers, you see. In this respect, philosophy is the handmaiden of theology, the rationalizer of theology. Now, you see, this is a fundamental contrast uh, with the most mystical, even, of the Greeks, even with Plotinus. Now, I note here in passing that anti-rationalized this attitude is other Christians took an even more anti-reason view. Augustine at least held that God's revelations are intelligible in theory, if only God gave us the necessary illumination, and that we should try to make sense of them. Others, however, held that the basic tenets of Christianity were inherently irrational, contradictory, and preposterous. Other believing Christians, and indeed they held their preposterousness was the sure sign that they were true. I mentioned in passing Tertullian, T-E-R-T-U-L-L-I-A-N, who is second to third century A.D., one of the fathers of the church. He was asked about a certain Christian dogma in which he devoutly believed. Did he think it made sense? And he replied in a famous line, Credo, quia absurdum. I believe it because it is absurd. It is certain because it is impossible. In other words, he was putting in as strong a way as he could the idea that he is having no truck with reason. Reason is a corrupt, distorting element, and if this view is irrational, that's good grounds to think it's true. This is always taken as an overt anti-reason manifesto, and it, of course, is the version of, of early Christianity that the existentialists today most admire. They find their inspiration not in Augustine, whom they regard as too rational, but in Tertullian. This is explicit. Now let's look at Augustine's metaphysics. Here the central concept is Augustine's concept of God, which is a mixture of many elements, as you would expect. God is in part an infinite mind containing the Platonic forms. So to that extent, he's like Plotinus's divine mind. Augustine describes him as fully real, and of course God is the only fully real entity. He is immutable, perfect, etc. 
He's just like Plato's other world or like the form of the good. But that isn't all he is because this is a religion now. And consequently, God can't be just a neutral platonic set of universals. He must be given a personality. And so Augustine describes him as a living, knowing, willing being, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good, the father of his children who loves them, who protects them, who judges them, who sends his son down to help them, etc. Now, most of this is straight out of the mystery cults of the time, and it's largely the primitive Judaic uh, inheritance, not nearly as sophisticated as the Platonic inheritance. Now, besides trying to combine God as a neutral Platonic world with God as a kind of infinite personality, Christianity also had the problem that many of the mystery cults of the period had, how to conceive the Trinity, the Trinitarian nature of God, how to relate God the Father to Jesus the Son, leaving out the third one. Now, uh, Christia Christianity, of course, construes Jesus as a divine being, the Son of God, and therefore a God himself. He was, however, the Son of God, and therefore a different God from God the Father. So there are now two gods. And yet, with its Judaic inheritance, Christianity is committed fervently to monotheism. Some of the other mystery cults were avowedly polytheistic. Now, this is a terrible problem. And it's worse when you add the third member of the Trinity. Now you have three beings. Each must be distinct from the other two. Each are God, and yet there's only one God. The ultimate position was, adopted formally by the church, was that this is a mystery which surpasses human understanding, which must be accepted on faith, how one can be three and still be one. Uh, there was a lot of debate about it at the time. There were some before the doctrine was finally settled. There were some people influenced by the Greek pro-reason view who were trying desperately to make sense of the Trinity. And there were others influenced by the primitive Hebraic worship of blind faith, and they wanted avowedly unintelligible positions, and they won out. I may say as a parenthetical remark that most of the countless heresies on countless subjects express this tension between the Judaic and the Greek influence on Christianity. And in every case that I'm familiar with, Judaism is the source of the worst, most irrational element in Christianity, Greek philosophy of the better, more rational elements. In any event, I don't mean that Judaism is Trinitarian, I mean the worship of faith. In any event, you see now the incredible problem Augustine had with God. He has to try to make some kind of coherence, if not sense, out of a being who has to combine emotionless, neoplatonic divine mind, the primitive Judaic loving personal father, and the Christian trinity, which is and isn't three. Now you can appreciate Augustine's view stated on occasion that uh, God is not really knowable or understandable to the human mind. The best we can do is approximate its uh, nature. In any case, God, in Augustine's view, created this world ex nihilo, out of nothing, by an act of will at a particular point in time. Here again is a profound contrast with any Greek view. All the Greeks, Plotinus included, believed that the universe was eternal, that its constituent elements had always existed. Here was another case where the Judaic view won out over the Greek. And as always, it created monumental problems for the Christians. The ancient pagans taunted the Christians. They asked questions like, if God came before the stuff of the universe, 
Why did he decide to create it at the particular point in time he did? Why not sooner? Why not later? What was he waiting around for, in effect? And uh, why did he choose this particular place to put it in rather than some other one, etc.? Now, to answer such questions, and for many other reasons as well, Augustine advanced a famous theory of the nature of time. Unfortunately, I have no time <laughs> to present it. Ask in the question period if you're interested, but please do, because it's important. In any event, God did create the world ex nihilo at a specific point in time, and he did so for a specific purpose. God has a plan. He runs every aspect of what occurs in the universe as part of his plan. Indeed, according to Augustine, God alone really has causal efficacy in uh, the universe. Everything is determined by God. For instance, in his Confessions, Augustine remarks when he tells about a journey that he took, <coughs> you might think on the surface that he, Augustine, decided to take it. And he is the real cause of the journey. No, Augustine says, really, God behind the scenes wanted Augustine to take it and was responsible for the journey as part of his plan for Augustine. Or Augustine relates a case where he gets a toothache and explains that God is punishing him in accordance with God's own long-range plan and so on. God is responsible for everything which occurs. And since he's immutable, no changes in his plan are possible. It's set and fixed once and for all. Everything in a word is predestined in accord with this plan. And from this aspect, Augustine is a rigid religious determinist. Now, this view is best expressed in the following parallel, which will give you uh, the feel of this way of looking at the universe. The universe on this view is no longer a natural fact, no longer a primary, no longer intelligible in its own terms. It's like a play, rather, uh, written by God, who becomes a cosmic playwright. The earth, the physical world, is the stage. Man is the chief actor. His lines have been written by God, who is also the sole spectator. The play is taking place once and for all. At a certain point, it will conclude. That's the end of the world. The actors will retire for their critical notices. <laughs> now you see the absolute contrast with the Greek view. The universe is not eternal, not natural, not a self-intelligible fact, but a specially created unnatural episode in the scheme of things. If you asked a typical Greek, for instance, in this respect, Aristotle, what is the meaning of life? Now, if you asked it in a metaphysical, not an ethical context, if you asked him ethically and you meant by what should man live for, of course, he'd have a lot to say. But if you just pointed to the phenomenon and said, what is its metaphysical or cosmic meaning, Aristotle would not understand the question. He would point to a rock and say, what is the meaning of a rock? What do you want it to mean? It's there. But on the Christian view, life on earth is like a play by Shakespeare. And it becomes meaningful to ask, what does it mean? In effect, what did the author have in mind? On this view, the fact of existence is not a primary, but a mystery, which requires some kind of unraveling. Everything is a symbol pointing beyond itself to God. Well, to go on, we have the problem now of evil in acute form. Because the question arises, why did God include so much evil, so much suffering in his play? Now, one sect of the period, the Manichees, 
that's the sect that I mentioned Augustine belonged to as a youth, thought that the only solution was to say that God is limited, that there is a devil and he is responsible for evil, which at least makes a certain kind of sense. Christianity repudiated this as heretical. Its view is that God is responsible for everything. He is all-powerful, and even the devil, therefore, is part of his plan. Why, then, does God create or allow evil? Well, part of the time, uh, Augustine takes the view that there is no evil. If you saw God's ultimate purpose, you would see that everything is really good. That's a point we discussed last time. But much more typically, Augustine takes the Neoplatonic solution to the problem of evil. You remember, evil is the absence of the perfection and reality that is inherent in the creature being non-God. All things in this world are necessarily infected with deficiency, with a metaphysical deficiency, because they are part of the semi-real created world. If you want a pun, but which nevertheless is meant literally here, they're made out of nothing and therefore they're deficient. This is, harks back to the Platonic view of non-being as the a constituent element of this world and as the source of imperfection. God, uh, from this point of view, couldn't have created a perfect world, a world without evil, because if you think of him as the source of light, we're now at the region where it's dark. It follows that all men, insofar as they are semi-real members of this semi-real world, are also inherently infected with evil. Men are sinners by nature and they have no choice about it. They can do nothing about it on their own. Their evil is inherent in the metaphysical setup. Notice here that the church and Augustine accepted this view fully. They explicitly denied that man on his own has any choice about being good, that it is not an issue up to him. He is helplessly evil by birth. And that, of course, is the doctrine of original sin. This became official with the condemnation of Pelagius, P-E-L-A-G-I-U-S. He was an early 5th century Christian monk. Uh, Pelagius was, and he held that each human soul enters the world sinless, that it has free will, is capable on its own of shaping its destiny by its own choices, and therefore is responsible for its actions and properly to be judged by God. Pelagius denied any intrinsic wickedness in man. This view was formally condemned as a heresy, and of course is to this day, because it made man too independent of God. The reasoning was if man could achieve virtue on his own, by his own will, then virtue would be his accomplishment, not God's. And it wouldn't therefore be true that everything was caused by God. And besides, the whole Christian scheme of Christ coming to earth and being crucified to redeem man would become unnecessary then. If man has free will to achieve virtue on his own, he wouldn't need to be saved by divine intercession. He wouldn't need any help from beyond or from the church. And yet Christ is supposed to be the savior without which man is lost. And it is essential, therefore, to Christianity, this doctrine. And therefore Pelagius was condemned and the doctrine was taken that man on his own without help from God is inherently corrupt, wicked, and helpless. He cannot take a step in the direction of virtue on his own. Now, this, of course, is determinism. And Christianity, in this respect, is fully deterministic. Free will is incompatible with man's inherent evil. 
It's incompatible. Further, I might add, with God's rigid predestination, with the doctrine that only God has causal efficacy, that everything's a part of his play, and that man is merely a puppet pulled by the strings uh, worked by God. If man has free will, what happens to this view that God determines everything that occurs? To say nothing of what happens to the view that God knows in advance everything that will occur. So if Christianity from this point of view is thoroughly deterministic on many counts, it is, however, incapable of accepting determinism consistently for other reasons. Because if it did, how would you praise or blame man? How can God hold him responsible, hold man responsible, for playing the part that God wrote him? Now, please note that I'm asking this question, so there's no use asking me in the question period. I specifically asked, how can God hold man responsible for playing the part that God wrote for him? How can God hold man responsible for an evil he couldn't have avoided? If there's no free will, isn't it hopelessly unfair for God to praise and condemn? Isn't it senseless for God to promulgate moral rules? Isn't it unfair for him to send men to heaven or hell? Christianity is therefore caught in a desperate problem. There must be absolute determinism. There must be free will. Now, if we had several weeks, I would indicate some of the devices by which Augustine tried to combine these two, to have his free will while eating it too. However, we haven't the time and it is not important. The fact is there is no possible solution on his premises and every solution Augustine gives, he contradicts elsewhere. I'll confine myself merely to giving one view of his on this question, which he took over in essence from Paul. Namely, at certain points, Augustine limits free will to Adam. Adam, he claims, was free to choose whether to obey God or not. Adam committed the original sin, the first sin. And this was then inherited by all of his descendants. So now we have no choice. But still, God validly punishes us because our first ancestor sinned volitionally. And this is the line that many, many Christians took. For instance, Milton, among many others, took it. And the whole of Paradise Lost is devoted to elaborating this view of the solution to the problem of freedom. It is, of course, a hopeless solution because it simply takes the question back to was Adam free? And the same considerations as to why no man can have free will on this philosophy apply equally to Adam. Was it possible for Adam to have used his free will such as to be perfectly moral and virtuous? Well, if so, the Neoplatonist answer to evil is wrong. That means evil is not inherent in the metaphysical setup. If the sin were really Adam's, then it's not God who is responsible, and so God is not the author of everything that occurs, and so on. And moreover, even supposing you solve this problem, where is the justice in condemning all men for the sin of one? No intelligible answer has ever been given to this. That is a dogma which must be accepted on faith. On the issues of evil and freedom, therefore, the upshot is a mass of contradictions in Augustine and in Christianity. It goes like this. God is the cause of everything that's good. In fact, he's the cause of everything since he is the omnipotent author of every event. And yet he is not responsible for evil. This world and man are inherently evil since they are not God and are therefore metaphysically defective, semi-real. And yet man is responsible for his sins and properly to be condemned by God for them. 
Man is helpless to be virtuous on his own, yet he is to bear responsibility for vices he cannot alter. These are the foundations with which we enter ethics. But first, uh, one crucial metaphysical tenet of Augustine's that I have stated, but not yet stressed. Namely that as a Platonist, a Neoplatonist, <coughs> Augustine agrees profoundly with Plato and Plotinus that this world in which we live is not fully real. It is a kind of shadowy reflection of true reality, in other words, of the realm of God. This world is not a solid, substantial, real dimension. It's hard to communicate this perspective. It is the, you have to view the world as a region of comparative darkness, far removed from the light and perfection which constitutes reality. It's like a transitory drifting haze against the solid background of supernatural light. Uh, if you say you don't agree with this, matter is solid, it's real, it's there. Augustine answers in a famous formulation, well, yes, of course, matter is there, it exists, but it is essentially the absence of God. So it is prope nihil, which is Latin for almost nothing. That's his definition of matter, almost nothing. You try to keep this view in mind and you'll have no difficulty grasping Augustine's ethics to which we now turn. <coughs> Now, I want to draw more widely than just on Augustine for our discussion of ethics, because in its ethics, you see the essence of Christianity most clearly, if you haven't already. To begin with, the essence of ethics for Augustine is, that it, as it has often been put, not a matter of right living, but of right loving. Loving, of course, primarily God, and only secondarily and derivatively the neighbor. In other words, the essence of the good life is not in what you accomplish or create during this life on earth, but rather in giving the proper inner emotional allegiance to the true dimension, to God. <clears throat> what counts above all is your inner state, not your outer actions. They're only important insofar as they reflect your inner state. Now this is the primacy of motive over action that we saw in discussing the Stoics last time. As we can also put it, it's the primacy of the inner over the outer, which is the way historians usually characterize it at this point in time. And it's much more intense than in the case of the Stoics because we now have a fully religious ethics with little pretense at being worldly or rational. Now this attitude, the call it the primacy of the inner over the outer, can be expressed another way. The primacy of consciousness over existence, or in terms of man's nature, of the soul over the body. And in this form, of course, it's the standard soul-body dichotomy present in Greek thought since the Pythagoreans and the Orphics, and Augustine, as we will see, adopts it with a vengeance, the soul-body dichotomy. Man is a temporary union of two distinct substances, the soul and the body. Aristotle is wrong in saying that man is an integrated unity of soul and body. Augustine's definition is man is, quote, a soul that uses a body, unquote. In other words, he's basically a soul with allegiance to the other dimension, and the body, since Adam's fall, has become the prison of the soul. Now, permit me to utter one 
enigmatic sentence here, which I will explain several lectures from now, which will be intelligible only to those of you who already know Descartes. Augustine's emphasis on the primacy of the soul over the body, or more broadly, on the primacy of the inner over the outer, has had overwhelming results in every branch of philosophy, not simply metaphysics or ethics. It is a profoundly primacy of consciousness approach to philosophy, and it is responsible for Descartes' distinctive approach to philosophy, his cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am, for those of you who know that one, Descartes got it from Augustine. For those of you who don't know it, just forget what I said altogether, and I'll mention it again when we get to Descartes. All right, now let us turn to the content of the characteristic Christian ethics. And first, it's evaluations of life on earth and of uh, man. Uh, I have already stated their evaluations on these points, but I must let Augustine speak for himself so that you will get a real sense of his way of looking at the universe. The conclusions in a nutshell, of course, are that life on earth is hell and human nature is depraved, but nothing makes it as clear as Augustine himself. I quote now from the City of God, a very, very extended passage. Quote, <clears throat> that the whole human race has been condemned in its first origin. This life itself, if life it is to be called, bears witness by the host of cruel ills with which it is filled. Is not this proved by the profound and dreadful ignorance which produces all the errors that enfold the children of Adam, and from which no man can be delivered without toil, pain, and fear? Is it not proved by man's love of so many vain and hurtful things? which produces gnawing cares, disquiet, griefs, fears, wild joys, quarrels, lawsuits, wars, treasons, angers, hatreds, deceit, flattery, fraud, theft, robbery, perfidy, pride, ambition, envy, murders, parasites, cruelty, ferocity, wickedness, luxury, insolence, impudence, shamelessness, fornications, adulteries, incests, and the numberless uncleannesses and unnatural acts of both sexes which it is shameful so much as to mention. <coughs> sacrileges, heresies, blasphemies, perjuries, oppression of the innocent, calumnies, plots, falsehoods, false witnessings, unrighteous judgments, <laughs> violent deeds, plunderings, and whatever similar wickedness has found its way into the lives of men, though it cannot find its way into the conception of pure mind. Who can describe, who can conceive the number and severity of the punishments which afflict the human race? Pains which are not only the accompaniment of the wickedness of godless men, but are a part of the human condition and the common misery. What fear and what grief are caused by bereavement and mourning, by losses and condemnations, by fraud and falsehood, by false suspicions, and all the crimes and wicked deeds of other men. For at their hands we suffer robbery, captivity, chains, imprisonment, <laughs> exile, torture, mutilation, loss of sight, the violation of chastity to satisfy the lust of the oppressor, and many other dreadful evils. What numberless casualties threaten our bodies from without? Extremes of heat and cold, storms, floods, inundations, lightning, thunder, hail, earthquakes, houses falling. <laughs> or from the stumbling or shying or vice of horses, from countless poisons and fruits, water, air, animals, from the painful or even deadly bites of wild animals, 
from the madness which a mad dog communicates, so that even the animal which of all others is most gentle and friendly to its own master becomes an object of intenser fear than a lion or dragon, and the man whom it has by chance infected with this pestilential contagion becomes so rabid that his parents, wife, children dread him more than any wild beast. What disasters are suffered by those who travel by land or sea? What man can go out of his own house without being exposed on all hands to unforeseen accidents? Returning home sound and limb, he slips on his own doorstep, breaks his leg, and never recovers. <laughs> Is innocence a sufficient protection against the various assaults of demons? that no man might think so, even baptized infants who are certainly unsurpassed in innocence are sometimes so tormented that God who permits it teaches us hereby to bewail the calamities of this life and to desire the felicity of the life to come. As to bodily diseases, they are so numerous that they cannot all be contained even in medical books. And in very many or almost all of them, the cures and remedies are themselves tortures so that men are delivered from a pain that destroys by a cure that pains. <laughs> from this hell upon earth, there is no escape, save through the grace of the Savior Christ, our God and Lord." Unquote. <laughs> and one very brief summary now from Augustine. Quote, Let everyone then who thinks with pain on all these great evils, so horrible, so ruthless, acknowledge that this is misery. And if anyone either endures or thinks of them without mental pain, this is a more miserable plight still, for he thinks himself happy because he has lost human feeling." Unquote. <sighs> As to man, he writes, Quote, he addresses God, but he means this to be taken universally, not just as a statement about himself. Quote, Thou didst set me face to face with myself that I might behold how foul I was and how crooked and sordid, bespotted and ulcerous. Unquote. You see, by contrast, that for Plato, life was a laugh a minute <laughs> and man was a superhero. Now, in such a state, all that counts is escape. <coughs> in other words, <coughs> reunion with God in heaven. However, declares Augustine, even in theory it is not possible for all men to go to heaven because divine justice requires that some men be eternally damned to pay for Adam's sin. There are therefore two groups of men mingled on this earth. <coughs> those belonging to what Augustine calls the city of God and those belonging to the earthly city. The former have received God's grace and are going to spend eternity in heaven at God's side. The latter are those who have not received God's grace and are destined to go to hell and spend eternity attacked by worm, fire, and demons. Now you see that the very important thing is to get into the right city. <coughs> How do we do this? What steps can we take on our own to earn entry into the right city? None whatever. That question betrays a Pelagian bias, 
Remember the doctrine of original sin. We are utterly stained by <coughs> sin. On our own, we cannot take a step in the direction of virtue. There is no way whatever we can earn our way into heaven. Otherwise, you're back in the position of Pelagius. We are helplessly dependent on God's decision. On their own, according to Augustine, all men deserve nothing but to go straight to hell. However, God is merciful. He decides to extend grace to certain men, to convert them from sin to virtue, and therefore, and thereby permit these men into heaven. Now, this is a free act on God's part. Prior to grace, we are all inherently vicious. We and we have no claim on God's grace. It's mercy on his part, not justice. Now, uh, if all men are equally corrupt, to start with, how does God decide whom to select for grace? The official answer is this is inexplicable to man. And you see now why hope is a cardinal Christian virtue. <laughs> and you see here the utter dependence of man on God. In epistemology, man depends on God's illumination for knowledge, above all for faith and revelation. In ethics, he depends on God's grace for virtue. And in metaphysics, of course, man is a semi-real creature, created, run, and ruled by God. Throughout, man is utterly, totally, helplessly dependent at the mercy of God's inexplicable decrees and decisions. This is characteristic of Christian philosophy at this period and profoundly in contrast to any characteristically Greek view. Now, if you object that it isn't fair for God to select some sinners out of the rest and give them grace and entry into heaven, the standard answer is it is not that God is unfair. Uh, the way that I've often heard it put is, imagine a millionaire who owns his money and gives some people money as a free gift. Well, that is not unfair to the other people to whom he doesn't give money. They didn't have any claim on it. Now, I might say that this is a very poor analogy. To have a more accurate analogy, you'd first say that the millionaire comes in, cripples millions of victims, then leaves some of them absolutely chained and gagged and at his mercy while handing out food and money to the rest. Then you could have a parallel, but then you'd have a problem. <coughs> However, let us pass on uh, to the next point. <laughs> you might ask, if this, all this much is true, why have any ethics at all? You can't achieve happiness on earth. You can't even earn entry into heaven. For what purpose would you take any action? What would be in it for you, the actor? And, of course, the answer is that is a corrupt question. God has ordained, he has commanded that you act in certain ways. And these commandments must be obeyed because God commanded them. The highest virtue is obedience to God. Doing your duty, your duty, because it is your duty. Indeed, Adam's sin, as we saw, for which all mankind was condemned, was the sin of disobedience of setting up his own code of values and not listening to God. The true Christian must abandon the attempt to work out a rational ethics or any code of values on his own. Ethics is a matter of the decrees of God. Whatever they are, you must obey. And not in the name of your own happiness, even your long-run happiness either. You are not in the true spirit of Christianity to be making a practical calculation 
saying to yourself, in effect, well, let's see, God has all this power, and he wants me to do these things, so okay, I'll do it, but my inner calculation is I'll get what's coming to me. I'll have a life of ecstasy and joy in the future, and that's why I'm doing it. It's, in effect, a trade with God, and he better come through when the chips are down. If you take that attitude, you are anathema to Christianity. Your attitude is supposed to be, thy will be done, not thy will be done if I get a lot of fun out of it. Now, I should say out of fairness that Christianity is definitely inconsistent on this point. Everybody prior to Kant is inconsistent on this point. Uh, there are several anti-duty, pro-egoist elements in Christianity. To mention them briefly, the emphasis on the salvation of your own individual soul. The statement that you will be rewarded with eternal happiness if you make it. And it's your own eternal happiness that you personally will experience, which quickly became the idea that otherworldly happiness is the reward for your virtue. The statement even of Jesus that you should love thy neighbor as thyself implies that you can love yourself to some extent. Now, all of these elements of egoism are legacies of the Greek influence on Christianity. All of them were extirpated by Kant. Until that time, however, they existed. Nevertheless, they were in conflict with the distinctively Christian element, which is that you obey the commandments out of reverence and love for God and a recognition that he has created you and therefore has a right to command his creatures. In this respect, Christianity is a typical duty ethics. <clears throat> well, now, what is it that God commands? What does he want of us? Having created this world and placed man in it, what he wants primarily, so it appears, is that man should turn away from life on earth and turn his attention to God. Renunciation of pleasures from life on earth. <clears throat> Concentration on one's otherworldly destiny. A brushing aside of this life as a snare, a temptation, an evil seducer of your religious purity. Those are the main themes of Christian ethics. As, the, as scripture says, uh, uh, in a line which contains the keynote to the whole ethics, quote, he that loveth his life shall lose it. He that hateth it shall gain it unto life eternal, unquote. Or as it's put elsewhere in scripture, quote, woe unto ye who laugh now, for ye shall mourn and weep. And blessed are ye that weep now, for ye shall laugh, unquote. Now, you may think that this is a primitive view that Christianity has long since abandoned. And so I want to call your attention to a few brief quotes from Bishop Fulton Sheen uh, in regard to Christianity's attitude to suffering on earth. In a book called Life is Worth Living, <coughs> Bishop Sheen writes, quote, our capacity for pain is greater than our capacity for pleasure. Suffering reaches the point where we feel we can endure it no longer, and yet it increases and we endure it. But pleasures very quickly reach a peak and then begin to decline. Age decreases the capacity for pleasures. Though pain never turns into a pleasure, a pleasure can turn into a pain. Tickling may be funny at first, but it can also become excruciatingly painful. 
Our capacity for pain is greater because the good Lord intended that all pain should be exhausted in this world. The divine plan is to have real joys in the next life. And skipping a little bit, quote, never losing our love of God, we can then find reasons for supporting pain. If we have ruined our health by excesses, we impose upon ourselves dietary laws and avoid delicacies out of love for our health. One can do the same with the soul. One can say, I will accept this particular suffering in order to make reparation for my own faults. Or we can also offer up our suffering for others. Now get this. Doctors will graft skin from one part of the body to the face if the face is burned. Those suffering from anemia receive a transfusion of blood from another member of society to cure them of that disease. If it is possible to transfuse blood, it is also possible to transfuse sacrifice. If it is possible to graft skin, it is also possible to graft prayer. We have blood banks for our own soldiers that their lives may be saved through our sacrifice of blood. Pain, agony, disappointments, injustices, all these can be poured into a heavenly treasury from which the anemic, sinful, confused, ignorant souls may draw under the healing of their wings. Thus, through love of God, suffering becomes sacrifice. The great mystery of the world is not what people suffer, it is what they miss when they suffer. They could be minting coinage for their own salvation and the salvation of the world. The tragedy of wasted pain, the unsanctified tears, the dull aches, the nauseating pains, the infuriating double crosses. How much of these are wasted and thereby converted into curses because those who suffer them have no one to love, unquote. Now the style and the imagery and metaphors are revealing. You can just see him hugging suffering to his breast, counting man's aches, pains, nausea, and tears like a miser counting his money, running his fingers through his treasure. And he is valid in his choice of metaphor. By the time of Christianity, suffering as such, that is on earth, has become a value. So much for Christianity as an ethics which preaches happiness on earth. Now to return to the early Christians for whom there is significantly more excuse. A study of the literature of the period, including the Bible, which, by the way, you should read it, makes points, and has been very influential. Uh, a study of the literature of the period is required for you to gain any idea of how violently the early church was anti-life. It preached that, uh, uh, woe unto you who laugh, for you shall mourn and weep. And it was very systematic in ensuring, if you followed its rules, uh, that you would weep now. For instance, I wouldn't even mention the church's attitude to business or industry if they had known about those uh, phenomena in the modern sense, but take such simple things as food, drink, and shelter. What should your attitude be? Well, a true Christian was to pay no attention to Take no thought of the moral, what ye shall eat, nor what ye shall drink, nor wherewithal ye shall be clothed. All that is distractions, and also temptations, because they are pleasurable. They constitute a source of enjoyment of this life. Now, of course, you must eat and drink, otherwise you would amount to committing suicide, which is forbidden. The solution, declared Augustine, is to look upon food and drink as medicine. 
Take what is required to sustain life, but stop before you start getting pleasure out of it. However, there is another peril here which God in his wisdom has placed before us. Even if you eat the modest amount necessary for life, there's a certain pleasure in swallowing it, in the taste, the savor of it, or in quenching your thirst, for instance, or in going to sleep at night when you're tired. And this seriously bothered Augustine. <laughs> it's what we can call the problem of pleasure. <laughs> and the problem is how to sustain yourself in the most frugal way without enjoying it. Now, Francis of Assisi, many centuries later, illustrates one solution to this problem. I quote you from St. Bonaventura's biography, which is an admiring biography. Quote, <clears throat> He restrained, he, St. Francis, restrained his sensual appetites with such strict discipline as that he would barely take what was necessary to support life. For he was wont to say that it was difficult to satisfy the needs of the body without yielding unto the inclinations of the senses. Wherefore, he would hardly and but seldom allow himself cooked food when in health. And when he did allow it, he would either sprinkle it with ashes or by pouring water thereupon would as far as possible destroy its savor and taste. Of his drinking of wine, what shall I say, when even of water he would scarce drink what he needed while parched with burning thirst? I interject to say that many of the saints drank water in which laundry had been washed. Continuing the quote, the bare ground for the most part served as a couch unto his wearied body, and he would often sleep sitting with a log or a stone placed under his head, and clad in one poor tunic, he served the Lord in cold and nakedness. Unquote. <clears throat> the same pattern of renunciation appears in every area of life on the Christian view. Sex, of course, is obvious. It is to be condemned if pursued for pleasure on the identical grounds. Because sex for pleasure would be love of this world and of pleasure in this world rather than of God. And so the church doctrine was sex is permissible only for procreation on exactly the same grounds and in the same manner as food is permissible only for medicine. Uh, one part of those doctrines was given up on food in the Renaissance. The other continued on. That was given up by most people, that is to say. Uh, the most consistent religious people take it still, food and sex, same view, for the same reason. As to sex, for instance, uh, St. Francis, I won't bother to read it to you, uh, he was, uh, char characteristically, would strip himself naked and jump into a snow heap whenever he felt the onset of sexual desire <laughs> in order to rout the tempter. Now, I refer you to a book which I always used to read at this point, unfortunately, I have to say that someone stole this book from me and I have never been able to find another copy. I say parenthetically that I will be eternally grateful to anyone who could provide me with leads as to how to track down a copy of this book. It's called Sex in History by G. Ratray Taylor. The book is no good philosophically. The man is a Freudian. But if you ignore his interpretation, it is filled with the most fantastic documentation of what human sexual practices have been, including those of the church. They are simply not imaginable by the wildest science fiction imagination, unless you read them. And of course, today, this view of sex is the source of all the anti-contraception, anti-abortion, 
Uh, the source of the view that the truly holy people, the priests and the nuns, must abstain, etc. Uh, the Christian attitude to wealth, that of course speaks for itself. You know the one about the rich man and the camel? What should your attitude be to yourself? Well, essentially, you should recognize the facts. <laughs> Namely, you're stained with sin, you're worthless, and you should estimate yourself accordingly. Consequently, the great virtue is humility. The great vice, the greatest vice, is pride. Recognize that you are human, which means you are a miserable, helpless sinner. St. Benedict in the 6th century drew up a list of rules as to how the monk should go about acquiring true humility. He outlined a number of the steps that you should take, and here I give you a few of those steps. His scriptural text is Matthew, quote, Whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. And now here's from Benedict, quote. i just give you a few of these steps. Now the first step of humility is this, to escape destruction by keeping ever before one's eyes the fear of the Lord, to remember always the commands of the Lord. The second, that a man should not delight in doing his own will and desires, but should imitate the Lord. Fourth, that a man endure all the hard and unpleasant things and even undeserved injuries that come in the course of his service without wearying or withdrawing his neck from the yoke. Sixth, that the monk should be contented with any lowly or hard condition in which he may be placed and should always look upon himself as an unworthy laborer not fitted to do what is entrusted to him. Seventh, that he should not only say but should really believe in his heart that he is the lowest and most worthless of all men. Eleventh, that the monk when he speaks should do so slowly and without laughter, softly and gravely, and that he should not be loud of voice. Twelfth, that the monk should always be humble and lowly not only in his heart but in his bearing as well. Now when the monk has ascended all these steps of humility, he will arrive at that perfect love of God which casteth out all fear. I note, by the way, a couple pages later, he goes on to say that the monks, quote, should not have pri personal property. The sin of owning private property should be entirely eradicated from the monastery. No one shall presume to give or receive anything except by the order of the abbot. No one shall possess anything of his own, books, papers, pens, or anything else, unquote. You see how consistent uh, the philosophy uh, is. You contrast this with Aristotle's magnanimous man. Benedict's monk and Aristotle's magnanimous man, or St. Francis versus the magnanimous, ma magnanimous man, are the uh, two perfect symbols of two radically opposite philosophies. What about now what Aristotle called the intellectual virtues? The study of science, physics, astronomy, math, etc. The attempt to understand by reason the laws of the universe. In book 10 of the Confessions of Augustine, having detailed a whole host of physical temptations standing in the way of man that he has to overcome, Augustine writes a very important section, which I quote an excerpt from, quote, I must now speak of a different kind of temptation, more dangerous than these, than the physical, because it is more complicated. For in addition to our bodily appetites, 
which make us long to gratify all our senses and our pleasures and lead to our ruin if we stay away from you, he's speaking to God, by becoming their slaves. The mind, in addition, is also subject to a certain propensity to use the physical senses, not for self-indulgence of a physical kind, but for the satisfaction of its own inquisitiveness. This futile curiosity masquerades under the name of science and learning. And since it derives from our thirst for knowledge, and sight is the principal sense by which knowledge is acquired, in the scriptures it is called gratification of the eye, E-Y-E. In many translations that comes out the lust of the eyes. It is to satisfy this unhealthy curiosity, I'm quoting, that freaks and prodigies are put on show in the theater. And for the same reason, men are led to investigate the secrets of nature, which are irrelevant to their lives, although such knowledge is of no value to them and they wish to gain it merely for the sake of knowing." Unquote. So science, learning, represent lusts also. This worldly loves and concerns which are futile and to be suspended. And of course, there are many more reasons why science must go. It's arrogant of puny man to pursue science on his own. What God wants man to know, God will reveal in his own good time. And if he doesn't reveal something, it is sheer snooping. It is sheer nosiness to go prying into the mysteries of the universe. After all, it's God's world, not man's. And besides, there is no answer to any question anyway. The answer to everything is, that's how it is because God willed it. It's a part of the plan. Everything is a miracle, in effect. And that, you see, is inherent in the idea of creation ex nihilo, out of nothing. There are no natural laws. All of nature is unnatural on this approach, and science is therefore impossible. Besides, your goal is not to study this world, but to get out of it, as though you were in jail. And besides, what is the point of studying nothing, or, quote, almost nothing? In other words, we have reached the complete reversion to the pre-Thales era, the era before philosophy and science. Now, you have to read the Confessions, and I suggest if you do, you read the, the translation by Pine Coffin in the Penguin edition. That is, without question, the best translation, the most modern. <laughs> you have to read the Confessions to get any real sense of the uh, Christian approach, the acute sense of sin, the absolute power of God, the utter irrelevance of this life, including science. Augustine remarks in passing, for instance, in a line that reveals volumes. Uh, I don't remember the exact words, but the idea was uh, he's confessing his sins to God, and he says at one point, just in passing, I used to study the liberal arts in those days because I was a worthless good-for-nothing, unquote. And he proceeds on as though that's self-evident, you see. That's this worldly uh, concern. At one point in the Confessions, Augustine gives himself a temptation rating. And the problem of temptation was, of course, acute for Christianity. The Greeks, at least Aristotle and Socrates, never had any equivalent of this because they held virtue with knowledge. You can understand in reason why certain things are right. And once you understand it, you will want to do it because you will want to achieve your own welfare. But of course, the Christians have a radically different view. Virtue's content is unintelligible. And when you actually act on it, it's in direct conflict with everything that would make life enjoyable. 
and consequently there's an irresistible, chronic, inescapable temptation to pursue the evil which the Christian has to fight against constantly. Augustine summarizes the actual reason uh, very, very aptly, but it doesn't change his mind why he is in such agony. In this world, in this state, but he means world, quote, in this state I am fit to stay, unwilling though I am, in that other state, namely heaven, where I wish to stay, I am not fit to be. I have double cause for sorrow, unquote. And so he does. Uh, in this temptation rating, he goes down to see whether, uh, since he has uh, been converted to Christianity, he is still getting pleasure from things in the physical world. He checks himself on dreams, on eating and drinking, on smell, and uh, he thinks he's okay on smell, for instance, but that uh, he might be wrong. On sound, does he get any pleasure out of sound? And he thinks that perhaps he's overly partial to the singing of hymns uh, from the point of view of enjoying the music, and so on and so on. But the, perhaps the most interesting one, passing over many, is uh, he gets sometimes pleasure out of his own humility. He takes a certain pride in his own humility, which is, of course, unspeakable. Somebody once told me about a dedicated Catholic, apparently actually committed seriously to Catholicism, who systematically cheated on his wife, committed adultery. And this person was confronted by the question, how can you reconcile this with uh, Catholicism, to which you're supposed to believe, in which you're supposed to believe, and the person uh, returned the answer, this is absolutely in keeping with my Catholicism, because the supreme virtue is humility. If I followed every commandment to the letter, I would be in terrible danger of pride. Therefore, I have to do some wicked things in order to pump up my humility. Now, you see the inescapable problem of any ethics which preaches humility. If the top virtue is the conviction that you're no good, then as soon as you achieve it, you become good. So attaining it destroys it. Now, I have said virtually nothing this evening about the whole altruist side of Christianity, the love thy neighbor element, although, of course, that's the best known in the modern world. It was by no means the most important in the medieval world. It's only since Kant, that that, since the 18th century, that that has become the big thing in Christianity. Because it's well known, however, and because you are an audience of... Uh, students of objectivism, I assume that the relation between this side of Christianity and the ones I've mentioned so far is clear. It's all part of the general process of renouncing life and forbidding independent rational judgment. Just as you are supposed to abandon independent judgment in scientific matters, so in dealing with people. Just as you want unearned grace from God, so you must extend unearned love and forgiveness to others. Judge not that ye be not judged. And just as you are to divest yourself of selfish pleasures in dealing with the physical world, so in dealing with people. You are not to love only those who give you happiness, those who meet your standards, those who are good in your eyes. That is pagan, egoistic, arrogant, this-worldly love. No, your distinctive virtue qua Christian is to love men who do not meet your standards, who do not give you pleasure, to love men who are out to harm you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, pray for them that despitefully use and persecute you, etc. What they do to you doesn't matter, it's just this life. Love of God is all that counts, and love of the enemy is proof of your selflessness and obedience. 
If men harm you, forgive them unto seventy times seven times. If they strike one cheek, turn the other. If they steal your coat, give them your cloak also. If they compel you to go one mile against your will, go with them too. Who are you, miserable sinner, to cast the first or even the second stone? In other words, the whole uh, altruism, love thy neighbor, axis of Christianity, as I think you can easily see, is completely consistent with the rest of it. Now, I've had to omit even a brief sketch of two elements in Augustine's philosophy that I had wanted to mention, but there is no time. One is his politics, and the other is his distinctive and very influential theory of history, a theory which was particularly influential on people like Hegel and Marx, to say nothing of Mussolini and Hitler. But I'll have to say that for the question period, if you ask me. For now, I want to conclude by summarizing the essence of Augustinian Christianity. When it comes to this, man is to abnegate himself, renounce the concern for his own pleasure and happiness, give up his mind, his science, his independent judgment, he regard himself as a worthless creature stained by sin in the grip of an all-powerful destiny, helplessly at its mercy, his only goal blindly to have faith and blindly to obey the commands of that power, hope that it will take undeserved pity on him and release him from bondage one day. That glorious day when it's all finally over for him, the day when he gets his final exit permit, death. Now, how long can man survive on this view of man and of life? I answer in one sentence. The next centuries of human history are called the Dark Ages. Let us take our break here. Thank you. I let us continue. For centuries, philosophers, including and particularly Christian philosophers, up through the period of Augustine had progressively been denouncing concern for life on earth, denouncing the free and independent use of reason, advocating that faith be exalted above it. They had been condemning and scorning material production, intellectual development, scientific inquiry. Well, they got their wish and in spades. For the next 400 years, with insignificant exceptions, reason, intellect, science, material wealth, all but vanished from the Western world. The West entered what we now call the Dark Ages, which are usually dated from about the 5th through the 9th century AD. This was a period of barbarian rampages and chaotic violence, which the Roman Empire completely disintegrated. Urban life virtually disappeared, for the most part, men lost the art of writing and reading. Life expectancy, so I heard, is supposed to have been under 20 at birth. In effect, civilization was wiped out. In particular, the West lost almost all of the philosophic and literary works of the ancient pagans. They had only a few snatches of Plato and Aristotle and a few others. Now, I should mention here that the writings of Aristotle were preserved in the non-Christian world, where Aristotelian doctrines flourished for centuries, for instance, among the Mohammedans, while they were almost unknown in Christendom. In the Western world for centuries, however, Aristotle, with the exception of a few fragments, was literally unknown. It was the ideas of Plato, 
transmitted by the writings of the Neoplatonists and Augustine that constituted the framework and the inspiration of such thought as existed. What thought did exist? <clears throat> Apart from a few insignificant compilations by minor figures, nothing at all happened intellectually until the ninth century. So we have 400 years of nothing, of sheer intellectual stagnation. What happened in the ninth century? One solitary figure who has any significance at all, and even so, uh, he has such little significance that he is only mentioned because historians are desperate to find somebody to discuss in all these hundreds of years. I'll just mention him. His name is John Scotus Origena, E-R-I-G-E-N-A. He lived about 810 to 877. He was a mystical Christian Neoplatonist who, from the viewpoint of the church, committed a number of heresies. For instance, in trying to avoid the doctrine of predestination and preserve human responsibility, Origena fell into the tendency to embrace Pelagianism, remember the view that man on his own has free will and can achieve virtue on his own. And Origena also succumbed to pantheism, the view that all things, including men, are part of God. Now, Christianity, on dogmatic principle, repudiates pantheism because the religion rests on the contrast between God as the infinite, perfect being and man as finite, sordid, crooked, ulcerous, bespotted, stained with original sin and obligated to humility. Well, now, if everything is God, then man is literally part of God. And then this whole scheme collapses and man's self-esteem would shoot way up. So pantheism is heretical. The upshot is that Origenes' views were condemned officially in 855. In other words, the first thinker of any significance in 400 years was condemned by the church, which was by now, as you'll know from your general knowledge of history, progressively becoming a major political force with which all thinkers had to reckon. What happened after Origina philosophically? Again, for 200 years, nothing. Philosophy, even on a modest scale, picks up again in the last half of the 11th century. Now, I won't discuss the reasons why it started at this point again. Essentially, that's a historical issue. I refer you to the appropriate history text. In essence, however, a modest civilization painfully and gradually was reborn, starting slowly after the ninth century. Schools began to be formed to revive learning and gradually expanded to universities at which philosophies were taught. Some fragments of the ancients were still possessed, and they came to be debated as to how they should properly be interpreted. And, of course, controversies began to develop among Christian thinkers connected with the schools as to how Christian doctrine should properly be interpreted. And, of course, ultimately, the Crusades brought the West into contact with non-Christian civilizations, and Christians were shocked to find that the infidels laughed at them and posed unanswerable objections to Christianity, and the Christians wanted to know how to answer and a few homegrown heretics popped up who had to be answered somehow. And for all these and other reasons, slowly, haltingly, for philosophic thought on a modest scale started again. Now, a terminological note here. The period from the 9th through the 14th centuries, between the Dark Ages and the Renaissance, is called the Middle Ages, or the medieval period. And because the philosophers of this period were almost all connected in one way or another with the schools and universities I just mentioned, these philosophers are referred to as the scholastics, the scholastics, the philosophers of the schools. 
Scholasticism is a general name for the philosophers of the whole Middle Age period, especially for those from the last half of the 11th on through to the 14th. And of course they survived thereafter, but they were no longer the dominant influence after the 14th. In general, scholastics all shared, the scholastics all shared a certain approach, however different their detailed conclusions. They were all ardent Christians, committed in advance of any philosophizing to the doctrines of the church. So they were authoritarian in their basic approach. Their concept of philosophy was, to oversimplify just a little, in effect to spread before them the writings of the church fathers, of scripture, and of whichever ancient philosophers they knew and were partial to, and then try to reconcile and make sense of this mass of authorities. In essence, they knew their main conclusions in advance. Philosophy for them was an attempt to substantiate rationally and to harmonize, so far as they could, the dogmas of the appropriate authorities. The study of the actual world around them thus seemed pretty irrelevant to them. They spent their efforts attempting to interpret and reinterpret the texts of the authorities before them, trying to get them all in harmony with one another. And to do so, they had to make all sorts of artificial distinctions, engage in hair-splitting of all kinds, and in general, turn away from any study of the actual physical world around them and immerse themselves in the study of the texts of the authorities. Now, what sort of issues were the scholastics first concerned with? Well, until the 13th century, they attempted no comprehensive philosophic systems. They engaged in specific disputes on specific technical matters and specialized problems. To give you just a taste, one controversy which developed, I'm speaking now of the period prior to the 13th century, was over the problem of universals. This developed as a result of something which had survived from the ancient world, namely somebody's translation of somebody else's introduction to Aristotle's categories. And this translation of this introduction had survived. And it raised the question of universals, although it didn't answer it. The question, in essence, was, are universals real or not? To which the scholastics in these early centuries worked out three main positions, which provoked furious controversy. One was the position taken by the scholastics heavily influenced by Platonism, for instance, by Origina, by St. Anselm, A-N-S-E-L-M, who's 1033 to 1109, important. Platonist scholastic of this early period, and uh, many others. I won't bother you with the names and dates. Now, these people took the general Platonist line. Universals are real entities, independent of particulars. Particulars are merely semi-real byproducts or reflections or emanations from universals. In other words, what has come to be called Platonic realism, as I defined that for you in the lecture on Plato. Realism as a technical term, meaning universals are real, not fictions. Now, this position, of course, was subjected to a great deal of criticism by various scholastics, and you can imagine the philosophic objections, so I won't repeat them. What's typical of this whole era, however, is the fact that this position was also heavily criticized on theological grounds. It led to conflict with the church. It led to heresy. How? Well, you know that the higher universal always includes the lower one. For instance, color as a universal embraces and includes redness, greenness, purpleness, etc. Now, what is God on a Platonist philosophy? He is the most real entity. And if the real is equated with the universal, then God, the most real being, has to be the most universal universal, the widest universal. 
the one which therefore embraces and includes all the others. But that means all things are included in God, and that is pantheism, and that is a heresy. So Platonic realism, for equivalent to this and other equivalent reasons, is unacceptable. By reaction to this, some scholastics went to the other extreme and denied universals altogether, a view uh, which came to be known as nominalism, N-O-M-I-N-A-L-I-S-M, and it's attributed to a scholastic known as Rosselin, R-O-S-C-E-L-L-I-N, 1050 to 1120. Nominalism is the view that only particulars exist, that they have no common characteristics at all, that each is through and through unique, and that so-called universals are simply names that people use without any objective basis in reality. It's simply the case that some people, that people decide to apply a certain name, a certain word to a number of particulars as a matter of subjective convenience. But that's what it is, subjective, with no objective common denominators, no real universals uniting particulars in reality. It came to be called nominalism because of the theory that universals are only names from the word nomen, which is Latin for name. Rosalind is supposed to have said, universals are only flatus voces, that is to say, breathings of the voice. In other words, they're noises we make in speaking, and that's all, they're words. This, of course, makes all conceptual thought completely arbitrary and detached from reality. In essence, it's the position taken by the Greek sophists and the pagan skeptics, and it is the one that was destined to dominate philosophy in the modern era, as you will see in a very few weeks. But it never became much in the medieval era. It was criticized on many grounds. It, too, was susceptible to theological objections, and Rosalind had to repudiate it formally in 1093. Why? Well, to take just one example, what happens to original sin? The idea of the church was that in Adam's sin, we were all supposed to have become infected. In effect, in Adam's sin, human nature as such, the universal manness was corrupted, and therefore all the particular men. And that was the metaphysical explanation of how you could inherit somebody else's sin. But if there are no universals, if Adam is just one individual, and each of us is a separate, distinct individual with nothing in common with him, then, of course, the inheritance of original sin becomes unintelligible. So nominalism, too, has to go. The third position, and the one that was finally dominant in this period, was offered as a kind of mediation between Platonic realism and nominalism. And its major author is Abelard, the one famous for his relations with Eloise. His dates are 1079 to 10. Uh, 40, uh, excuse me, to 1142. And uh, he performed a very great achievement for this early period at a time when nothing about Aristotle's theory was known. He worked out a view roughly similar to Aristotle's, even if very, very primitive. And his view is often called moderate realism, which is a foolish name because it sounds like Aristotelianism is a compromise between Plato and the nominalists. In very brief form, Abelard's view was that the nominalists are right in one respect, only particulars exist, but that human beings, by a process of abstraction, are able to discover a common nature in a number of particulars, and that the universal, while it therefore exists in one sense only in the mind, as an abstraction from particulars, nevertheless is not a subjective fiction, as Rosalind had said, because in fact individual things do have common properties which form an objective basis for our abstractions. 
Now, this position is essentially the view that Aristotle took in the ancient world, so I won't say any more about it here. As worked out by Abelard and later much more fully by Thomas Aquinas, it has all the main virtues and problems that Aristotle's own statement of it had, which we looked at some lectures ago. Now you see from this brief survey that there is nothing essentially new on this issue during this period. What is new is the way the whole issue becomes entangled in theological controversies and heresies. Indeed, as the philosophers of this period soon came to see, no matter what issue dis you discussed, you ran into the risk of heresy, of contradicting some dogma or other. And this raised for them a second main issue during this early pre-13th century period, namely the relation of reason and faith, about which I'll now say a word just to give you the atmosphere of the times. Some of these scholastics, attempting merely to make sense of the authorities and the dogmas, without questioning or challenging them, started to stir up doubts despite themselves. Abelard, for instance, wrote a work called Seek et non, Yes and No, in which he listed 158 propositions. For each of them, he quoted various fathers of the church in favor and simultaneously against. Yes and no, you see. Now, Abelard was a loyal Catholic. He merely wanted to make sense out of the dogmas. But it seemed to others, watching the spectacle, that here was the ugly voice of reason rearing itself in the midst of the paradise of Christian faith. In general, two attitudes were taken to the, on the issue of reason and faith. To some figures of the period, reason was a dangerous enemy of Christianity and the whole attempt of the scholastics to make sense of the dogmas was depraved. Let reason loose, they thought, and even if the author has the best will in the world, he's merely going to cause trouble. A true believer doesn't need to have it make sense. Philosophy, even scholastic philosophy, they said, is the invention of the devil. So Bernard of Clairvaux, for instance, who had a mystic experience of God, so he claimed, declared, quote, I believe though I do not comprehend, and I hold by faith what I cannot grasp with the mind, unquote. <laughs> he was a real Tertullian type, which have always been there, uh, and reveled in the incomprehensibility. Credo qui absurdum, he believes it because it's absurd. The other attitude at the time was, however, more widespread. It was represented by Anselm. It was the Augustinian attitude, in essence. Remember, you must first believe in order that you may then understand. In other words, you start with faith, that gives you your premises, and then you try to make such sense as you can. Uh, Anselm and all these Augustinians of the period regarded the relation of reason to faith very similarly to the way Aristotle regarded the relation of reason to sense experience. If you take Aristotle's view of that relation between reason and sense experience, Reason cannot contradict sense experience since it's based on sense experience. At most, reason might be unable to explain temporarily some experiences. Well, uh, the same for Anselm in relation to reason and faith. Faith is the basis of reason. It's what you start from. And therefore, maybe there'll be bits of the faith or large hunks that you can't explain, but that's simply temporary and you couldn't possibly criticize the faith. And he put this in a the following very, very typical formulation, quote, 
No Christian ought in any way to dispute the truth of what the Catholic Church teaches. But always holding the same faith unquestioningly, loving it, and living by it, he ought himself, so far as he is able, to seek the reasons for it. If he can understand it, let him thank God. If he cannot, let him not raise his head in opposition, but bow in reverence." Unquote. I think that gives you the flavor of the era better than anything else, and needs no comment. Now Anselm himself thought that he could make sense out of a good deal of Christianity. And in the course of his attempts, he worked out an argument for the existence of God which became very, very famous. So I want to explain it to you briefly. It's called the ontological argument, O-N-T-O-logical, from the Greek ontos, meaning being. This is an enormously famous argument. It claims that from the very concept or term God, you can prove that he must necessarily exist just by the definition of the term, without any need to know where the concept came from. Simply granting that you have an idea of God. And of course, he says, everybody has an idea of God. Even the fool who said in his heart, there is no God, has to have the idea of God to be able to utter the statement, there is no God. Well, grant that you have an idea of God, uh, however you got it. And from that idea alone, God's existence will be proved. Simply by definition. How? Well, the definition that Anselm gave is, God is the being than which nothing greater can be conceived. The being than which nothing greater can be conceived. Or as it's put in alternative versions of the argument, the absolutely perfect being. Now, I'm going to give you a modern statement, my own, which I think is a little clearer than his, but it's certainly his idea. I take no credit for it. Let's make a hypothetical mental chart in our minds and characterize two beings. Call them being one and being two. And let's give each of them every Christian perfection we can imagine. They're each omnipotent. They're each omniscient. They're each all good. They're each creator of the world, etc. For every perfection you can name. There's only one difference between these two. Being one has the attribute of actually existing in reality. Being two does not. Well now, which is the being than which nothing greater can be conceived? Which is the absolutely perfect being? Obviously the one which has the attribute of actually existing in reality. Because it has all the perfections of the other one, and on top of that it exists. And surely it's better to exist than not to exist. Now, for instance, I hold up two lighters, one in, one in my right hand and one in my left. This will be baffling to the people on the tape. I'll simply say that in my left hand appears to have nothing on it. Now, these two lighters are identical in every respect. They are both made of the same metal, they have the same shape, they light cigarettes the same way, everything is the same. There's only one difference. The one in my right hand exists, and the one in my left does not. Now, which is the better lighter? It's obvious. Um, consequently, if you say, uh, I have a concept of an absolutely perfect being, but he doesn't exist, you're saying I have a concept of an absolutely perfect being who lacks a perfection, which is a contradiction. QED. 
Logic itself demands the existence of God. How do you like that one? <laughs> now, this argument has been endlessly criticized since Anselm advanced it. Aquinas thought it was worthless. Descartes, Spinoza, and Leibniz thought it was terrific. Locke, Barclay, Hume, and Kant thought it was terrible. Hegel thought it was terrific and has gone back and forth ever since that time. The Platonists all liking it, the anti-Platonists not. Anselm, of course, was a devout Platonist. I'll confine myself here to relating one criticism raised by a contemporary of Anselm's, the monk Gaunilo, G-A-U-N-I-L-O. Now, he was a devoutly religious man, and he certainly believed in God, but not by this route. In fact, uh, Anselm had referred to the fool who said in his heart, well, Gaunilo wrote a little work called Pro Incipiente on behalf of the fool. And in that work, he made the point that the uh, uh, whole argument, even if you grant all of its premises, proves nothing at all. It's all, he said, completely hypothetical. It's confined exclusively to the content of the mind and at no point makes contact with actual existence. At most, he said, it shows that if you think of an absolutely perfect being, you must think of it as existing. But it doesn't follow that because we think of something as existing, therefore, it actually exists. And he gives this illustration. I think of an absolutely perfect island. I-S-L-A-N-D. Island. Now you can give it modern perfections. It has palm trees and dancing girls and the whole world. Now imagine two such islands. They all have the same characteristics except one exists and the other doesn't. Now obviously, the one that exists is more perfect because it has all the attributes of the other plus existence. So therefore, such an island actually exists. Now, that's obviously preposterous. Why? Well, said Gaunilla, all we've proven is that if there is such a perfect island, then it must exist. But we knew that before we started. If it is, then it is. The question is supposed to be, is there an island? Is there one corresponding to our concept? And, of course, the same thing is true with God. Therefore, he said, Anselm's proof fails. That's the big contribution of Anselm. Well, let's go on. You see from the brief sample so far the caliber and barrenness of philosophy during the period prior to the 13th century. Now we got out of this period somehow, as you know. But how? Well, many factors were at work, but the central one, the major intellectual event which altered the whole climate of opinion, was that finally, after more than 600 years, in the century between 1150 and 1250, the West recovered all the major works of Aristotle. Now, this occurred as a result of increasing contacts during the century with the culture of the Mohammedans, who had preserved the Aristotelian works, as I mentioned earlier this evening. The Arabs themselves so I have read, found Aristotle's manuscripts in one of the most momentous archaeological discoveries in history, the most momentous one. They found them in a cellar in Syria sometime in the 5th or 6th century AD, and they had a flourishing civilization based on them. Well, once they were discovered in the West, they were translated from Arabic and other tongues into Latin, and organized and systematized and soon became widely known. 
Uh, one of the main figures responsible for such translation and systematization of Aristotle's works was Albertus Magnus, Albert the Great, who was the teacher of Thomas Aquinas. Now, Aristotle's writings struck the 13th century like a bombshell. Here was a monumental, integrated, systematic, rational philosophy encompassing a wealth of scientific information and philosophic positions on hosts of issues unheard of for centuries. And progressively, scholars wanted to know what did Aristotle have to say and how did it relate to Christianity. Now, at first, the church, as you would expect, reacted properly. That is to say, properly from their premises. They banned Aristotle's works outright. <laughs> in 1210, it was forbidden to teach Aristotle's physics in Paris. A few years later, the metaphysics was banned. And progressively throughout the century, the attempts to relate Aristotle to Christianity were condemned by the church. Now you can see why. Uh, uh, if you consider the violent contrast between the two philosophies of Aristotle and of Christianity. One almost doesn't know where to start. Take metaphysics. Aristotle says there is one reality. This Christianity, two realities. God versus this world. Aristotle says the natural, physical world is fully real in its own right. It is reality. Christianity says the so-called natural world is semi-real, infected with metaphysical deficiency. Aristotle says the physical world is eternally in existence. Christianity said it's created ex nihilo. Aristotle says this world is fully natural. Its significance and explanation is within itself. We must understand it in terms of natural law. It is deprived of supernatural source or significance. It is not a theological cryptogram symbolizing an otherworldly message. Whereas, of course, for Christianity, this world is merely the temporary backdrop of the drama of salvation. Everything has a symbolic supernatural significance. There is no, nothing natural about the world, no natural law. It's just a temporary stage for a divine play. For Aristotle, God is the unmoved mover, unconscious of the world, without power over. For Christianity, God is omniscient, omnipotent. For Aristotle, there is no personal immortality. For Christianity, that, of course, is the crucial thing, the hope of heaven, the judgment, final judgment, the final reward, etc., and the fear of the final punishment. In epistemology, Aristotle believes, of course, in sensation, sensory experience as the foundation and logic as the method, reason, as, of acquiring knowledge. And, of course, Christianity believes in faith as the central concept, faith and revelation as the foundation. In ethics, well, again, where would you begin? Aristotle views man as a potentially proud, properly proud, the great-souled man as a self-sufficient being, capable on his own of achieving everything worth having in virtue and in value. And his goal is happiness on earth. Christianity regards man as sordid, crooked, ulcerous, bespotted, stained with sin, helpless, and his goal is escape, release to the other world, union with God. Now, this is a big difference. And when a force of this dimensions was let loose in medieval Christendom, something had to be done. The better minds of the age could not ignore Aristotle, nor could they repudiate Christianity. 
which everyone took as an unquestionable axiom, as it had been literally for centuries. Uh, now they had a real challenge to their harmonizing, reconciling uh, proclivities. In spite of the church, therefore, the best men set to work to try to reconcile Aristotle and Christianity. The outstanding attempt, the one which was ultimately responsible for changing the church's attitude to Aristotle, was that of Thomas Aquinas. His philosophy, called Thomism, finally adopted by the church, was finally adopted by the church officially as the basic theory of Roman Catholicism, although not until 1879, and it remains so to this day. Now, I should mention in passing that Aquinas's attempted reconciliation of Aristotle and Christianity owes a good deal to Arabian and Jewish philosophers who preceded him and who were also struggling with the question of how to reconcile Aristotle with their religions, namely Mohammedanism and Judaism. And here I might mention the very great Mohammedan Aristotelian Averroes, approximately mid-12th century, who was often called simply the commentator because of his profound knowledge of Aristotle. And I might also mention Moses Maimonides, the 12th century Spanish Jew, author of Guide for the Perplexed. And why were the perplexed perplexed? Because they didn't know what to make of Aristotle and how to reconcile it with Judaism. Now Moses Maimonides answer was in significant part the model for Thomas Aquinas. Now I presume you know already that the task Aquinas set himself is impossible. His system is nevertheless of profound historical significance because in constructing a Christian philosophy within an Aristotelian framework he made Aristotelianism known and respectable and acceptable to the most advanced thinkers of the medieval world. And in so doing, although it was quite contrary to his intentions since he was a dedicated Catholic, he unleashed the forces of pagan Aristotelian rationality into that barren world in a way in which within a century or so of his death brought the Middle Ages to its termination. More than any other single factor, it is the Aristotelianism of Thomas Aquinas that opened the door to the Renaissance. And so we come to the culmination of medieval philosophy, the philosophy of Thomas Aquinas. His dates are 1225 to 1274, and in some books, 1275. He has a monumental, ingenious, philosophic system, more thorough, more systematic than any in all of philosophy prior to his time. In its key concepts, however, it is not very original. Throughout, it is an attempted synthesis of Aristotle and Christianity, or of Aristotle and Augustine. And therefore, you are already familiar with the basic ingredients, or at least the most basic of the basic, of his philosophy. What I want to do now is merely indicate some of the essentials by which he brought crucial Aristotelian views back onto the intellectual scene. I want to give you at least a rough indication of how he tried to reconcile Aristotelianism with Christianity. Now, I'd like to stress out of fairness that my exposition of Aquinas is going to be confined only to the broadest of broad surveys. 
If you tried a full presentation, even a half full one, even a tenth full one, you would have to be here 20 or 50 lectures. And I doubt that you want that. Now this evening I want to look only at Aquinas' epistemology. The rest of his system we will save for next week. This is a two-lecture unit and continues next week. Now, in epistemology, the main problem was to reconcile reason and faith. And Aquinas did so by saying we must distinguish two fundamentally different subjects. Philosophy versus theology. Now, as he uses the term philosophy, and of course, as all ancient and medieval philosophers use it, it includes not only what we call philosophy today, but also all the knowledge that we would put in the sciences. That's harking back to Philane for Sophia, love of wisdom. Philosophy is the subject that begins with the evidence of the senses and proceeds throughout strictly by reason and logic. Using the Aristotelian processes of observation, abstraction, definition, induction, syllogism, the definition of archive, first principles, etc. It is a completely natural subject which man can pursue by the use of his natural, rational faculty without any need for divine grace or illumination, says Aquinas in a radical departure from Augustinianism, and without any need for the dogmas of faith as its basic material. Again, a profound break with Augustinianism. Philosophy proceeds with the facts of this world as its data and primary object. In a word, philosophy is the subject which proceeds on secular Aristotelian lines. Theology, by contrast, is the subject which begins with the dogmas of faith, with the revelations, and then tries to explore and explicate their full meaning. Now, to a significant extent, these two subjects will have a different content, therefore. Philosophy is primarily concerned with the facts of this world and what it can learn from. Theology is primarily concerned with the mysteries of religion. There will, however, Aquinas thought, be a significant overlap between the two branches of knowledge. There will be many things that philosophy can prove rationally and which have also been revealed by God. So you have to think of two overlapping or intersecting circles. One contains all natural knowledge, all rational knowledge. One contains all revealed knowledge. And in the overlap are the issues which, as part of revelation, belong to theology, and yet as capable of independent rational proof, belong to philosophy. Now this overlap area, Aquinas called natural theology, natural theology the part of theology that can be proved by reason. And he thought it included the proof of God, of the immortality of the soul, and of several other important things. As to the part of theology which can't be proved by reason, the so-called revealed theology, what is its relation to reason and philosophy? And Aquinas' overwhelmingly important answer is, revelation can in no way contradict reason it can maintain nothing that can be rationally refuted. Revealed theology simply supplements, that's the key word, supplements reason by giving us information on subjects about which reason has nothing to say one way or the other. 
That's Aquinas' view. For instance, he says, take the question of whether the world was created at a certain point of time or existed eternally. Now he claims, from simply looking at the world, there's no way of knowing. So if you go simply by reason, you'd have to say, I don't know. That's false, but that happens to be his view. On that issue, therefore, he says, theology may properly speak. And when scripture tells us that the world was created out of nothing, we're entitled to accept it because it does not conflict with reason. It simply fills in a hole that reason couldn't answer one way or the other. They can't conflict the two subjects, he said, because after all, God gave man both reason and revelation. And God, in effect, as a good Aristotelian, advocates the law of contradiction. He wouldn't give us contradictory faculties. So that if someone claims to give a rational proof that one of the dogmas of faith is false or contradictory, reason must, said Aquinas, proceed to prove that the objection is invalid. And, of course, it will be able to do so, he believed. Now, of course, if the dogma is something that belongs only to revelation, reason can prove the dogma is true, but it should be able to refute all of the objections and leave it simply from the point of view of reason, an open question, which we then appeal to theology to decide. Now, I think you see the significance of this view. It was the first four centuries charter of liberty and of liberation for human reason. Reason now has its own domain. The world revealed to man's senses and whatever you can learn by reasoning about it. It is no longer just, reason is no longer just an appendage of theology. Theology. Its domain is a separate subject fundamentally which proceeds on Aristotelian lines on the basis of sense data, not of a the intuition of a world of forms. Reason is now secularized, naturalized. It is now autonomous because its data is experience, not faith. Reason's capacity to know truth, says Aquinas, is a natural power. Here, of course, he follows Aristotle. It requires no special divine aid, grace, illumination. In reasoning, man is on his own. He needs no special help from God in philosophy or science. Now, I hope you see the absolutely fundamental opposition between Aquinas' approach here and that of Augustine, to say nothing of Tertullian and his friends. For Augustine, faith is the basis of reason. For Tertullian, faith contradicts reason. For Aquinas, it is neither of these. Faith is not the basis or the antagonist of reason, merely a supplement to it. That's all. Now, by describing revealed theology as that about which reason has nothing to say one way or the other. By stating that faith is a supplement to reason, Aquinas implies, although that is not obviously his intention, he implies that faith is now on the defensive, because by his formula a thing goes into revealed theology only if reason is silent on the issue in question. But if reason has something to say, then according to Aquinas this must speak out. And if its arguments were unanswerable, then the alleged dogma couldn't be true. In other words, Aquinas' basic epistemological principle is the rational is an absolute which you must subscribe to. Now, in the face of any apparent conflict between reason and faith, Aquinas himself always took the line that the reason there was no conflict is because 
the intellect had made an error. The reason didn't really conflict. In other words, he never personally challenged the faith, obviously. But given his formula, the way was open for others to say in the face of a conflict, it's the faith that's wrong, not reason. Let's throw it overboard, which is just what happened. Now, of course, Aquinas didn't think a conflict would ever develop. But you know that it had to. And in fact, soon after him, it did. Pretty soon, they found that reason had a great, great, great deal to say and that it was mostly inimical to Christianity and to the whole medieval viewpoint. Now we have to leave Aquinas' epistemology uh, at this point. I, I should say just out of fairness before leaving it that Aquinas is a very great epistemologist. If you strip off the theology, which is ever-present, but if you can read apart from that, and he himself takes great pains to keep philosophy and the theology very separate, and therefore it's very easy to strip off his theology. He makes many fascinating points on questions of detail. Uh, I would have to say that on a great many questions, a lesser questions, but still vital questions, he is better than Aristotle himself. And now that's as great a compliment as you can pay a philosopher. I think offhand of one view of his on the method in detail by which the laws of logic come to be known by human beings. I think Aquinas' treatment of that question is superior to Aristotle's. If you're interested, you can ask me about that at some time in the question. Now, I want to conclude the discussion of Aquinas for this evening at this point. I've given you at least the broadest essential of his distinctive contribution to Christianity in the area of epistemology. Next week, I'll pick up with Aquinas' metaphysics, including his view of reality, of causality, his five famous arguments for the existence of God, and perhaps I'll have a minute to work in something about his angelology, his theory of angels, and then we'll look briefly at his ethics, and then we will trace the development from Aquinas through the Renaissance and on to the development of modern science out of the foundations laid by Aquinas. You've heard enough, however, at least to begin to appreciate Aquinas' contribution to the release and uh, salvation of the West and I mean salvation now in a rational sense, salvation from Plato and Augustine. All right, let's draw a line here for tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Now, before you disappear, I would like to make one statement, if I might. There is an election on Tuesday. And I would like to make a comment in that framework. This course is primarily concerned, of course, with ancient and medieval early modern philosophy. But you see that the dominant figure is Plato. That Plato made possible Augustine. And if we could look ahead just a moment, Plato made possible Kant who is simply Plato in an infinitely more clear and vicious form. And, of course, Kant was completed by Hegel, who represents the final culmination of everything, which is only a seed in Plato, has become a full-grown cancer in Hegel. Now, in that background, against that background, I would like to read you a quotation which arrived in my mail this morning. 
Someone sent it to me thinking I would be interested, and they were certainly correct. It's an article called Just Plain George. <laughs> by Robert Sam Anson, and it appears in Harper's Magazine, November 1972. I don't know anything about the article except this passage. Quote, It is significant, for instance, that when McGovern returned home from World War II, unsettled by the experience, unsure of his values, and not at all clear what to do with himself, he fell under the influence of a pacifistic Methodist minister and philosophy professor named Donald McCanninch, and with his coaxing plunged deeply into Hegel. The German philosopher seemed to present the best of both worlds. The ethical values of the East, where society overshadowed the individual, and the more familiar rugged individualism of the West. Inner quote. George was quite taken with Hegel, McCanninch once said. He had the wholeness McGovern was looking for. Close inner quotes. Interestingly, but continuing the quote, liking Hegel and being infatuated with the Hegelian concept of history never led McGovern, as it did so many Hegelians, to likewise love Marx. The reason is instructive, inner quote from McCannage. George could never buy something like communism. He thought it was too materialistic. <laughs> Close inner and outer quotes. Now I have just one comment. <laughs> Anybody who could find rugged individualism in Hegel could find Americanism in a policy of totalitarianism at home and surrender abroad. That same mentality is at work in both. Now, Hegel, at least, had a, an epistemological basis for it. He rejected the laws of logic explicitly and said that the individual is the collective and vice versa, A is non-A. Whether McGovern is that deep, I don't know. He is surely consistent on politics. The question is, will Hegel win on Tuesday? <laughs> that is up to us. Thank you. Now we'll take... Oh, I want now... Now again, I am inundated with questions of a written kind. Uh, many of which I asked for during the lecture, so I'll start. One question simply says, Augustine dash time. So I gather that is Augustine's theory of time. To put it briefly, it is as follows. Time is made up of the past, the present, and the future. Is it real? Well, let's consider them separately. The past obviously doesn't exist. The future obviously doesn't exist, not now. It will exist, but it never actually exists because when it exists, it becomes the present. So of the three, if there's any chance for time to be real, it's only the present. But how long is the present? Suppose you say it's an hour. Well, the whole hour doesn't exist at any one instant. So what actually exists at any one instant? A tiny, tiny fragment of time. How tiny? Well, it can't have any size at all. Because even if it has two parts, 
one part would have to exist when the other didn't. In other words, the present is an infinitesimal fragment. But an infinitely small fragment can't exist. It's nothing. It has no extension. Therefore, the present is unreal also. Therefore, time is a myth. There is no time. I once heard someone present this argument and say, I'm sorry, I have no time to answer questions. My play, play, uh, train is leaving. <laughs> now, however, said Augustine, we have to try to explain where does the appearance of time come from, granted it's not a reality. And his answer is, time is a subjective feature. It's something contributed to experience by man. It's a product of the way the human mind operates. And the same is true of space. But those two are twins. They always go along together. Time for Augustine is a feature of the human mind. If you obliterated man, you would obliterate time. To say that something is present is simply to say something is perceived. To say that something is past is simply to say human beings remember it. They have it, a memory of it. To say that it is future is simply to say human beings anticipate it. Now, it follows, therefore, that since human beings came into existence only with the creation of the world, time came into existence only with the creation of the world. And there is, therefore, no meaning to the question, what was God doing before he created the world? Because there was no before. Before is a temporal concept and is inapplicable until the world comes into existence. Moreover, there's no use asking such questions as, does God know in advance what Adam is going to do? God is not in time. Therefore, from his point of view, there is no in advance. God is in eternity, timeless. For him, what we call past, present, and future is one timeless Span without extension. <laughs> and therefore, there's no question about God knowing in advance. Now, you see this was a very convenient theory. Uh, it was the theory taken over by Kant, uh, who uh, said explicitly, but with more systematic arguments than this, he didn't use Augustine's arguments, that time and space are simply subjective human products and that therefore, of course, Kant said, true reality is therefore unknowable. Augustine said, no, true reality is knowable by faith. Uh, well, Kant, <laughs> as he grew older, said that too. So, to, to uh, uh, just uh, a couple of last points. Um, if you want to classify theories of time in your own mind, there's essentially three different theories of time. One that holds that time is objective, that is to say, a feature of reality external to man, and absolute, that is to say, a reality which would exist even if all physical objects were removed. Newton, for instance, held this. It's called the absolute theory of time and space. Space is like a gigantic container. Time is a stream of instants, and even if you obliterated all physical things, space and time would still be there. Second is the view that time and space are objective. That is, they're features of reality independent of man, but they are relational in character, not entities. This is known as the relative theory. Time and space as relative or relational. And that was the view, of course, taken by Aristotle. 
that, uh, and we presented that under him, I won't repeat that. And thirdly, the view that time and space are subjective, that they are features of the human mind. Uh, that's the idealist tradition from Augustine, and even in a way implied in Plato, but not nearly so crudely as in Augustine, all the way on through Kant and all of his disciples. Now, without going further into it, what is the answer to Augustine's argument? In a word, the same as the answer, I mean, you could say many things, but to confine myself to just one point, the same as the answer to uh, Zeno's paradoxes. You cannot divide infinitely. You will never, therefore, reach the actual infinitesimal. Whatever you reach will always be finite. That's a lead, and I think that's all that is required. It really is a parlor game masquerading as a philosophy. It's exactly on the level of Zeno's paradoxes. Um, shall I just continue with the written ones for a while? Yes. Averroes, A-V-E-R-R-O-E-S, is the name of the Arabian Aristotelian, who had a truly profound understanding of Aristotle. Yes. Uh, specifically, the laws of logic. How does Thomas Aquinas say we arrive at the laws of uh, logic? Yes, this, I think, is utterly brilliant on his part. You see, Aristotle's position, as he formulates it, leads to a certain contradiction. Aristotle says, on the one hand, uh, that we arrive at the laws of logic by induction. We perceive one instance of uh, the law of contradiction, for instance, of this table. It's not both brown and not brown. And another and another instance. And after all, we generalize, and then we see self-evidently that the generalization is true. Now, however, Aristotle also says that the knowledge of logic is required in order to know anything. And so the question is, how can you know the law of contradiction as a result of generalizing from instances of it, and at the same time say that you have to know the law of contradiction to know any proposition, including even the first instance of the law of contradiction? You see the problem. Now, Aquinas' brilliant solution was to say, that the laws of logic do not come to be known by induction, but rather by abstraction. Abstraction not from instances of the law of contradiction, but abstraction from instances of the concept of being or existing. Said Aquinas, as soon as you open your eyes and have the first sense experience, you have implicitly the concept of being, existing, a thing which is. And as soon as you have that concept implicitly, you have implicitly but really, actually, the awareness to be is to be. A thing is what it is, and therefore by implication contradictions can't exist. In other words, the process is not one instance of the law of contradiction, then another, then the generalization, but a sensation then immediately the implicit concept of being, and thus by implication the laws of logic, and therefore in the first sensation, Aristotle is right, you do know the laws of logic, which I think is brilliant. Because Aristotle had been attacked for being in an impossible snarl there for a long time. All right, I'll take another written one. You have stated that a philosophy has no hope of becoming popular if it has a weak ethics. Why then has Kant's philosophy, as opposed to Aristotle's, had the most influence on subsequent movements? 
isn't Aristotle's ethics more practicable and more appealing to the man on the street? A perfectly good question, but you uh, no, don't fully interpret me correctly. I can think offhand of four points to make. To begin with, Kant's ethics has certain attributes that Aristotle's doesn't. It is ruthlessly consistent. And it has, therefore, the force of absolute consistency of a kind that nobody else's has, and certainly that Aristotle's, with its mixture of Platonist elements and uh, Aristotelian elements. And that's a big advantage to an ethics. Nothing is more crucial in morality than the passion that comes from absolute ruthless consistency. Kant is, makes no bones about it. Now, Aristotle is not on the defensive philosophically, but he's not very enthusiastic about ethics. That is not his forte. He is not preeminently a moralist. And therefore, his ethics lacks a kind of fire or passion, which comes across only occasionally, as in his description of the magnanimous man. Second, Kant's ethics, however vicious it is, is universally practical. That is to say, no one can practice it. But in another sense, it's not designed for any special class of men. You, everyone can wreck his life on it equally if he wants to try it. Aristotle's is definitely aristocratic, if you take it as a whole, because of the stress on contemplation as an end in itself and a presupposing wealth of high intelligence, etc. And so ne necessarily, it would seem irrelevant to the great mass of people. Thirdly, very crucially, this is perhaps the most important, throwing the preceding two points into insignificance in a way, Kant cashed in on millennia of Christianity, or 1800 years, of a powerfully established Christian context which was absolutely taken for granted and he simply drove people to the wall given that context. Aristotle took the first steps in a brand new direction without any ancestors or context at all. He had before him only Plato or the Sophists. Now, you have to understand this point. It is much, much easier for you today to be receptive to a philosophy that preaches reason than it would be if the same people with the same honesty and the same intelligence existed in the 4th century BC. Because I'm not speaking of any one of you in person or being insulting, but I include myself and I mean it as applied to mankind in general. At that period of human knowledge, to go by reason was a complete unknown. There were no theories to say what it would consist of or what it would mean in practice. To live avowedly and self-consciously by a philosophy of reason and to know what that would mean, you would have to be a first-rate independent philosopher. It would simply not be possible for the decent man on the street to do it. He would have no way to figure out what are all the implications and applications and how do you do it and how do you solve all these endless problems, etc. It's only after centuries and centuries where we've acquired the rudiments of, and of course even there, mankind is still today in a moral wilderness. But now we have, of course, after Aristotle and the Industrial Revolution and modern science and the birth of the United States of America and the development of language, etc., we have some guidelines. And even those proved insufficient, as you know, and we're in process of losing them. And that's, of course, is the crucial need of objectivism, the objectivist ethics. 
but you cannot ask why did the people of Aristotle's time not endorse him because after all he was better than the rest. It simply is anachronistic historically. It couldn't have happened. Uh, I don't think it could have happened even if Aristotle had had a completely consistent philosophy. It would have taken centuries and centuries to absorb such a revolution. But as it was, he had an inconsistent one, and that simply made it worse. Now, I will conclude this question, though, by giving one point to, to Aristotle, and that is, there is a sense in which Aristotle always has won out in human history. Insofar as people act or function at all, they do function on an Aristotelian base, insofar as they accomplish anything of value. That they cannot escape. And in that crucial sense, the common man does go for Aristotle, only he doesn't know about Aristotle, and he doesn't know that you can't combine the Nicomachean <coughs> Ethics and the Sermon on the Mount. And in that same sense, nobody can live by Kant. All they can do is destroy themselves and society in the process. That's about as much as I want to say on that question. Do I have another written? Uh, I mean, uh, I see a hand vaguely in the far distance. Augustine's theory of history. Yes. Augustine's philosophy of history was an attempt to find meaning in the progression of human history. He wrote The City of God, his major opus, to explain the laws governing history and therefore to answer the question, why did Rome fall? He wrote it right after Rome fell. And the pagans were saying that Rome fell because it turned to Christianity instead of to the old pagan gods. Augustine's uh, point was that Rome hadn't embraced Christianity soon enough or completely enough, and that's why it's fell. But you should understand that the fall of Rome to the ancient world was the exact equivalent to what the fall of the United States to uh, Russia would be. It was the end of the world, truly the end of the world. It immediately went into the Dark Ages and never regained, uh, never recovered till the Renaissance. Now, Augustine's explanation was to take this, uh, away the onus from Christianity for this catastrophe. And his view was history has an intelligible pattern. It is not simply a series of individual human choices and actions. It has a purpose. It is teleological. This is the theory of teleology applied now to human history. It's going somewhere. It has a direction. It's structured, in effect, like a well-made play. Not one by Beckett and Ionesco, but a well-made play. It has a beginning, a middle, a climax, and a denouement. The climax, of course, being Jesus' appearance on Earth. Now, this was overwhelmingly important. I don't mean simply the idea that history has a meaning or that there are laws of history, but the idea that history has an inner motive and purpose of its own, and that as a whole it tells a story leading to an ultimate fulfillment. That is a deeply religious interpretation of history. And, of course, that is the absolute basis of uh, Hegel's theory of history, that he uh, history operates through a series of stages aiming finally at the true fulfillment of the absolute. It is the basis of the Marxist theory of history, that history is the progression of economic forces moved ultimately by the climax it's going to reach, namely the classless society. 
It is the basis of the fascist and Nazi racist interpretation of history that the meaning of history is the progressive realization and triumph of the Aryans. All those are simply ringing the changes on the Augustinian uh, view. More than that, there's another crucial point. Remember the city of God versus the earthly city. The two races of men mingled on the face of the earth. The one chosen by God, given grace and promised triumph. The one chosen, uh, the one not given grace by God, doomed to vice and ultimate holocaust in hell. Now Augustine said you can interpret all of history in terms of the conflict between these two cities. The members of each are predestined and their interaction and conflict are the ingredients that make up the flow of history. Now this idea of a dichotomy within history, that all history can be explained in terms of the interaction, in effect of a value superior class, a predestined collective, and a value inferior class, a predestined inferior, and the clash and conflict between them was taken over by Hegel, by Marx, by Hitler, in different form, of course. Hegel says it is the Germans versus the non-Germans, which he substitutes for uh, the God-oriented versus the non-God-oriented. Marx and is therefore a profound nationalist. Marx couches the whole thing in congenial to his own philosophy in economic terms. It is the capitalist versus the proletariat, or more broadly, the haves versus the have-nots, which have battled throughout history. And, of course, the Nazis do the thing in biological terms. It is the Aryans versus the non-Aryans, or the Aryans versus the Jews. All of that is simply, again, ringing the changes on the basic Augustinian collectivist, determinist, teleological interpretation of history. Uh, that's the two central points I would make. And therefore, on this point alone, Augustine has had more influence than just about any other uh, philosopher. The philosophy of history. I'll take a written one. What are the two allegedly rational arguments for ecstasy put forward by modern mystics that you mentioned last time? I'm glad to answer that because I thought no one would ask me, and no one did ask me last time. I'll recite them very rapidly. Argument one, from the sixth sense, and that argument goes as follows. If a blind man saw, or, or, or came up to a man with normal vision and said to him, I don't see what you see, therefore you must be crazy. You would say, what business do you have to criticize somebody who has a faculty you don't? If you don't have it, keep quiet. By the same reason, we claim the mystics say a sixth sense, which gives us an insight into a true dimension of reality radically opposite to this one. A reality where everything is the one, where all distinctions are unreal, etc. and so on. Now, by what reasoning can you, if you only have five senses, say we don't see it? If you don't have any such sense, then just like the blind man, you should keep quiet. You're in no position to criticize. That's argument one. What is the answer? Well, you could go on indefinitely, but it isn't worth it. There is no identified physical basis of the sixth sense. Although Duke University claims to be working on it. <laughs> 
Second, it's a funny thing that blind people have no controversies as to whether there are sighted individuals. How come? Obviously because blind people are capable of having proved to them objectively in terms of their own senses that they lack a certain faculty. Human beings, normal sighted people can make predictions of what will happen that they judge by their sight and the blind person can verify that he could not have made those predictions and yet he can verify them by his other senses. Consequently, there's no debate. On the question of the mystics, however, the exact opposite is true. It's not that the mystics are able to demonstrate a form of knowledge which we can validate or verify by our five senses. On the contrary, they claim a form of knowledge which blatantly contradicts everything given by the five senses. Now, the parallel would be if you told a blind person who just ate cherry pie, there is nothing round or sweet in the universe, and I know this from my fifth sense. Now, a blind person would have a perfect right to say, I may be blind, but I'm not crazy. <laughs> oh, the second argument is the argument from unanimity. The argument from unanimity goes mystics through the ages, east, west, north, south, ancient, medieval, modern, have had the same mystic experience. Now, doesn't that prove that it can't be just a subjective aberration or a disease consciousness, but there must be something objective and real to it? The answer to that one is, yes, there's something objective to it. They all have the same sickness. <laughs> Schizophrenia, or whatever it happens to be, the symptoms remain constant. It's a syndrome. I mean, you prove nothing by showing that uh, something happens repeatedly. More than that, how would you ever know that they have the same experience since the central characteristic of the experience is that you can't say anything about it? Now, if you judge by the hundreds of religions which exist and which all appeal to it and which all conflict with each other on details, they must have some differences. However, that is too stupid to discuss further. Another question. If you are supposed to be humble, no, if to be humble in this world is a virtue, why is it a punishment in the next and the reverse with pride? I'm not sure I get that. Is the meaning of that question, uh, why is it that the two worlds are in opposition to each other? So that if you're, you're supposed to be humble in this world, but you can exalt yourself in the next one. You're supposed to be miserable down here, but you can be happy in the next one. Is that the meaning of the question? Why are the two worlds opposite to each other? And if so, uh, it's a very good uh, question. Nobody who ever preached a super reality ever took the following line. Nobody ever said, yeah, there's another world, but this one is great. Enjoy this life, live in this world, and when you're finished, then you go to another terrific world. <laughs> Never was taken. The view has always been this world is rotten, evil, defective, etc. And therefore, get no happiness out of it, abase yourself in it, etc. And then you'll hit the jackpot in the next dimension. Now, there are various reasons you could give why the two dimensions have always been construed as opposed to each other. Philosophically, the answer is because there is only one reality. No matter who says what, the human mind cannot conceive of two realities. Reality means what is real, what exists, everything. 
And therefore, if you say there's two of them, you have to say one of them isn't really real. It's deficient, deficient defective, etc. And therefore, you have to sacrifice. That's the philosophic reason. If I can permit myself with the proper preface to make a psychological observation, which I normally oppose in any philosophy course, of course, the reason is the motivation of mysticism. A person is inclined to mysticism only because they are opposed to this world. They are anti-reality. And they want something that they cannot have in this reality. So they start off hating this world. So it's not a surprise that this world comes out as poor and as the opposite in, in uh, uh, their philosophy of true reality, as they construe it. But that's a psychological explanation which you have to keep separate in your mind from a philosophical one because otherwise it becomes the fallacy of ad hominem. I'll take another one from the floor. On the aisle. When I define epistemology, I assume you're not a student since the beginning of the course because I defined it in lecture one. Epistemology is the branch of philosophy which defines the nature, means, origin, extent, and certainty of human knowledge. The processes by which we acquire and validate knowledge of anything. It's the theory of knowledge. Take another one from the floor and the front, yeah. According to Christianity, what is the ecstasy you will gain in the other world? A spiritual happiness which will make anything you know in this life pale by comparison. But we can't really describe it because the other world, you have to get there first. But it will really be something. <laughs> what is Aristotle's view called if not Oh, no, excuse me. What is Aristippus' view called, if not Epicureanism? That is, in other words, the view, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. Uh, that is called hedonism. And it's a different type of hedonism from Epicurus's. It's sometimes called short-range hedonism. <laughs> when the philosophers of the Hellenistic period refer to the problem of evil, do they make any distinction between the actions of men, such as murder and rape, and natural phenomena, earthquakes and disease? Oh, absolutely. There's human evil and natural evil. And the standard explanation of human evil is human beings have free will, which is a perfection of man, and therefore God should be thanked for giving man free will, but therefore you can't hold God responsible for man's misuse of free will. And then on natural evil, uh, diseases and lava, etc., uh, that I discussed last time. A search for an explanation of the universe has recurred in the history of philosophy you have discussed. Is this a valid question from the objectivist point of view? No. Not an explanation of the universe. Explanation means giving a causal antecedent. The universe means the totality of everything. In terms of what would you explain everything? All that's left over is nothing. And therefore, you'd have to explain something in terms of nothing. That is the meaning of Ms. Rand's point that existence exists. That is where you start. You cannot get underneath it and ask, well, why does it exist? You can ask, why does any particular form of it exist? And the answer will be in terms of the actions of other elements. But you will never be able to get underneath it all and ask, but why is there anything? Which is the question the existentialists or the religious people ask. Um, 
Let's see a short one here. Do I have any more from the floor? Yes. I can't hear you. Well, he by, the, what is the specific way by which Augustine influenced Hitler? I really mentioned that through the theory of history. There's, you understand when I say that these people influenced Hitler. Hitler was not a scholar. He did not read Augustine or Hegel, for that matter, as far as I know, uh, and certainly not Kant. Uh, he read, you know, uh, Rosenberg and uh, Wagner and uh, the German equivalent of James Reston. Uh, <laughs> so the influence is enormously indirect, but nevertheless enormously real. The whole idea of a collectivist, determinist, teleological interpretation of history is Augustinian, and that is essential to the Nazi uh, philosophy. Any others from the floor? Yes. You explained why Aristotle didn't have any impact in the Greek culture. It was a pretty rational. Right. How is it that he can have such a, a tremendous impact in the medieval culture, which is dramatically less rational? Well, that's a very good question to which I'm not sure I have an answer. Uh, why is it that Aristotle had so little impact in the Greek culture, which was rational? comparatively, and such an enormous influence in the medieval, which was so irrational? It's a very good question. I can only say that the Greek world was already breaking up at the time Aristotle came on the scene. So it was actually passing away. The city-state order was passing away. The center of civilization, uh, you know, after Alexander was the end of the height of Greece. And so it was too late, is the best I can say right off the top of my head. As to the medieval period, you see, uh, by the time they got Aristotle, he was a treasure that he wasn't in the Greek world. In the Greek world, they had a thousand philosophies. They had hundreds of years of it. And uh, some of them appreciated Aristotle and some didn't, but he wasn't a revolution and a revelation. In this barren medieval world, Aristotle struck only a few, mind you, only a few. Aquinas, Albertus Magnus, it's just one or two as a fantastic treasure, which he was. And in a certain sense, you see, he stood out in bolder relief in the medieval world than he did in the Greek world. But you'd have to say you have to give the credit to the few men. It was certainly not the mainstream of medieval philosophy that accepted him. They hit the roof at the idea. And if you ask me, well, if there had been no Aquinas, what would have happened? I don't know. What would have happened if there had been no Aristotle? Aquinas is a vital, crucial figure in the history of the West. If there had been no Aquinas, for all I know, we'd still be in some equivalent of the dark or early Middle Ages. Still. I mean, it lasted for 600 years. Why shouldn't it last for 12? See what I mean? Uh, and therefore, you owe your existence to Aquinas just as much as to Aristotle, although more to Aristotle, because without him, Aquinas couldn't have been. But you see, it takes only one man. That's all it takes. In, in each era. And it was within, without modern means of communication. You know, Aquinas couldn't go on television and broadcast. <laughs> he couldn't even write in the newspapers. And yet within a hundred years of his death, that was the end of the medieval period. Now, if you can do that much in that period, on the basis of such ignorance, in a hundred years, think what you can do in 50, if we have them today. Um, Let's see if I can take a last 
written question. Um, which is short enough here. Well, I'll end up on one on objectivism. Will you explain what you mean by the term concrete bound? Yes. Ayn uses the term concrete the way Aristotle or Plato uses the word particular, meaning a specific individual existent. A concrete bound individual, however, means essentially a nominalist, as I defined that term philosophically. It means a nominalist in practice. That is to say, an in, a person who does not grasp that particulars have something in common, who does not therefore function in terms of abstractions, of concepts, but simply glares at separate particulars out of context and without relationship to other particulars, and is therefore incapable of learning from experience or of grasping principles. Now, the best example I ever heard of this is a discussion that was related to me many years ago about a then student of objectivism who was trying to explain, this was, I believe, at the time that Truman had tried to nationalize, what was it, the steel industry? I think so. And this student of objectivism was arguing against it with some friend or acquaintance who was not interested in objectivism. And it went into painstaking argument as to why nationalization of, the, uh, of industry as such would be evil, impractical, immoral, disastrous, subversive of freedom, everything you want. And went into it in spades. And the person heard the whole argument and said they were absolutely convinced the steel industry should not be nationalized. They were opposed to truth. And next week, the person had one question. What about the coal industry? <laughs> now, that's what you call concrete bounds, see? He's, he sees it on steel. Now, the real low-grade ones see it on Bessemer steel, but not... You know. <laughs> or they see it on this factory, but not the one next door. Or on this bench within the factory, but then you have to be a real modern pragmatist to get that now. The ordinary concrete bounder on the street can grasp up to an industry. But industry in general and human actions as a whole, impossible. Now that is a nominalist mentality. There are no universals. There are no concepts. And everything is a separate concrete. And you see, that is the practical result of the assault on concepts, which is the essential element of modern philosophy, not of ancient or medieval. But that story we won't start telling for several weeks. All right, it's 10.30. We'll take our conclusion here. Thank you. This course continues with Lecture 8.